Hello, it's Dale Scott, and welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. Every summer in Kansas City, 25 men have one simple mission to win. Starting pitchers, corner power hitters, middle relievers, speedy gloves up the middle, closers, utility infielders, backup catchers, and they're each remembered here. From 1969 to last year, all Royals careers have been preserved with the most comprehensive collection of facts, memories, and stories in existence. Welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. And here we are, back with another edition of Umpire Chats. On Clubhouse Conversation, my name is Davo, and this is the place where we catch up with your favorite current and former Royals players and talk Royals baseball year-round. Although this is a special feature where it's mainly about the umpires and MLB in general, but we will talk about the Royals throughout the next couple of hours with Dale Scott, who is kind enough to join us here at Umpire Chats Edition 2 on Clubhouse Conversation. Now, hopefully you heard our first edition a few weeks back with Mike Riley. It's here on the website, Clubhouse Conversation com along with about 250 to 300 other interviews. I don't know how many we have on here. 275 or 300 maybe total between current former Royals and now our second umpire here on Clubhouse Conversation. Also, I want to make sure that hopefully you follow us on Twitter at Royals Clubhouse, on Facebook, Clubhouse Conversation, and as well on iTunes, you can subscribe to us, Clubhouse Conversation, so you don't miss any more of our current Royals interviews, our former Royals interviews, our dishes where we break down the current team, or any future umpire chats right here. So let's talk about Dale Scott, the guy I'm super excited to have join me here on Clubhouse Conversation. Dale Scott, who, before he became a Major League umpire from 1985 to 2017, so that's 32 years he was a Major League Baseball umpire. Before that, he was a top 40 radio disc jockey, which is what I've done. My background is a top 40 radio host throughout the country as well, so I'm excited to talk to Dale about being a radio guy and about how he got into umpiring and coming up through the system. And and he umpired during the 2001 World Series. He had the plate for Game 3 when George W. Bush threw out that first pitch. We'll talk about that coming up here. We'll talk about three different All-Star games he's umpired in. And, and his first game was against the Royals here in Kansas City. And, and Dale also is the first openly gay MLB umpire who came out. We'll talk about the bravery and the empowerment that it took to do that. All that and so much more as Dale Scott joins us right now on Clubhouse Conversation. First of all, Dale, thanks so much for taking the time. And second of all, how's everything going with you? Well, I, I, I can't complain. I, uh, I This retirement thing, I'm, I'm very coachable, and I uh, seem to uh, have adhered to it quite quite quickly. <laughs> I love quite it. Honest with you. <laughs> very coachable. And you really do have the great radio voice. We're going to talk about radio here coming up in a few minutes. But what's keeping you busy in mid-May of 2019? Uh, actually, I'm kind of busy uh, the next couple months. Uh, uh, Mike, uh, my husband and I were going to Vegas for a fun trip, uh, leaving uh, tomorrow for just three days. But at the end of the month, I'm going to Indianapolis. Uh, to uh, I'm, I work for American Umpires. I'm their director of professional services, and uh, I'm uh, basically evaluating uh, 16 candidates for two umpire school scholarships to the uh, Windlestad Umpire School next January, and that consists of me uh, flying out to Indianapolis uh, the end of May. I'm also going uh, back in June and back in July when I will uh, make the announcement of uh, who gets the two scholarships. So I'm doing that. I'm also, uh, Outsports.com has uh, uh, asked me to be on a a panel of uh, people in sports uh, that are out uh, during the L.A. Pride, uh, the first weekend of uh, 
of uh, June, so I'll be down in Los Angeles uh, doing that on Friday at UCLA and then uh, marching in the parade on on uh, Sunday. Uh, I'm throwing out the first pitch for the Hillsboro Hops here uh, right outside of Portland for their first Pride Night uh, coming up in June. I'm also going to be down in Anaheim for the Angels' first Pride Night uh, uh, late June. And then uh, Mike and I go to New York, and we're going to be at the uh, uh, New York Pride World uh, uh, Pride festivities and the uh, 50th anniversary of Stonewall in New York and in the uh, Major League Baseball second uh, the second year in the row that uh, or second year ever that uh, Major League Baseball has a uh, contingent marching in the uh, in the pride march there so i've got a very 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 uh full schedule for uh, may and june yeah i was gonna say my gosh i'm glad we fit this interview in when we did um <laughs> you might have to cut a commercial break for you while i was explaining everything that i'm going to be doing so i don't know <laughs> this this update brought to you by gold bomb medicated powder yeah uh, okay well one thing i you know i mentioned it a second ago was the radio thing now the radio voice you definitely have that going on i can see why you were interested in that now so you know, as you and I have talked a little bit before this interview, you know that I also have a, a, a top 40 radio background. So I'm a top 40 afternoon radio host here in KC playing all the big pop hits. Um, something I, I never realized, though, until the last few months was that you used to do that as well. So you were on the air, a top 40 radio station in Eugene, Oregon, KBDF. Please tell me all about this. i got to hear more about this. Uh, KBDF, Eugene. Um yeah, I loved it. You know, I, way back, I, I think in seventh grade is when I first really started to um, get an interest in radio and listen to radio and uh, and thought that it would be really, uh, really pretty cool to be a disc jockey. I did a, uh, a paper for a class, and my subject, uh, I interviewed uh, at the time a top 40 uh, icon in the Eugene market. <laughs> uh, this was about 1974. And uh, uh, David Jeremy Beecher was his uh, radio name, which I just loved. Um, and I, 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 it was funny because I called him up and uh, I said, you know, I introduced myself. I said, my name's Dale Scott. He goes, Dale Scott. He goes, that's a great radio name. <laughs> <laughs> I said, okay. So I filed that away. Um, but uh, when I got into uh, high school in Eugene, the four Eugene uh, school district high schools had uh, their – uh, Eugene had the school district had a station KRVM FM, and each high school the, the four high schools had a remote at each high school, and so you would have a lot of time each day that uh, you know the various high schools would have their time to to put on whatever shows they were putting on or and, and that kind of thing. And I I, I dove into that. I love that, and uh, I went just a, a total cold call. Uh, you know, odds are so against me. Uh, the uh, summer before my senior year, I was 16 years old, turned 17 in August. But I went to KBDF, which the station itself was right across the street from Sheldon High School, where I went to school. It was at the time uh, the one, or at that time I think number two, but 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 the number two of the bullets. <laughs> it was good. It was making inroads to be the number one uh, top 40 station in the market, and 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 actually it, it ended up about. A year later, for one one of the ratings uh, periods, the number one AM or the number one station in Eugene. Period, um, uh, and that was kind of exciting. But anyway, I, I went in there just to, uh, to you know see if I could maybe get my foot in the door of maybe they had an internship, maybe they had something, just anything. Uh, you know, had a, had made a, a tape of myself from uh, from my high school stuff, and I uh, talked to them, and, and as luck would have it, they hired me. Uh, part-time, basically my shift, my first shift was the 4th of July, 
the bicentennial, Fourth of July, 1976, and basically my my you know I played uh, public service announcements, or you know back uh, back then you'd have half hour you know religious shows or whatever, and I was on Sunday I was working Sunday morning uh, from like my first shift was like 3 to 6 a.m. or something but huh. th- that only happened one week the next uh, before the next weekend they they said we're going to change some stuff around uh, your shift is going to be 3 a.m. to 9 a.m. Uh, Sunday morning but the first hour and a half uh, yeah first hour and a half I was on the air then I would play tapes and, and that kind of stuff and then the last half hour from 8.30 to 9 I was on the air so that was unbelievably exciting for me because I, you know, I was just hoping to maybe, you know, sweep some floors or something and, and, and just learn from, uh, from observing and, and talking to people that work there. Next thing I know, I'm, I'm on, I'm on the air. And it just, it really was a thrill. And, and I, I enjoyed every, uh, every minute of my, uh, of uh, my radio career. Yeah. Cart machines and real to real tapes. It's funny you say that because my, my start was running a religious program on Sunday mornings and then running the Casey case and weekly top 40 and, do, and doing the weather forecast once an hour. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I ran Casey case for years also. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, a lot of people, you know, I mean, back then it was on, it was, a, you know, it was an album. You, right. you, you played them on a turntable and, because so many stations uh, didn't have the, you know, everybody had a turntable. So, um, yeah, I played, I used to play, you know, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars, you know? <laughs> how, how many years did you do that for then? When, when well, was the last I, I time did, you did? You know, it started in uh, July of 76. Uh, I went through my senior year in high school, graduated in 77, went to two years of a community college and television broadcast, got a social science in uh, Lane Community College. And uh, that whole time I was working uh, part-time for the station and umpiring. I was umpiring uh, uh, baseball, and also I was officiating football and basketball uh, at the high school level. Uh, after I graduated uh, from Lane in the two-year degree uh, in May of 79, uh, I went full-time uh, for about a year and a half. And I told uh, management, I started out at 10 o'clock at night till 2 in the morning. Then I went to, uh, from there. I went to six to ten at night, and uh, I told the management. I said, "I'm, I'm you know, I'm planning on going to umpire school. Um, that starts in uh, December of, of, of 1980." And so I, they, you know, they cut me back. I actually asked them uh, if I could cut back to, to part time as I prepared because I wanted to umpire some more games, you know, and get some more games under my under my belt. But I, to be quite honest with you, I when I went to umpire school. Uh, you know, I might be getting ahead of the interview here, but when I went to umpire school, I, I, I knew that, you know, obviously if I scored high enough and that kind of thing, there was a possibility of getting a job out of it. But the odds were I would just learn a lot about umpiring. I'd come back to Eugene, and then uh, with, the, uh, with KBDF, they, they basically said, you know, when you come back, we, we will have a position for you because, you know, I, uh, I had been there for several years. And, um, you know, and so I, I, that's what I thought it was going to happen, quite frankly. And, of course, uh, things changed. <laughs> That's amazing. What a cool story. We, we got to get this into a book. Have you ever thought about, because I've, um, I've got seven umpire autobiographies. I'm kind of an umpire dork the last couple of years. i got Eric Gregg, Ken Kaiser, Al Clark, Davey Phillips, Derwood Merrill, Dave Pallone, and Doug Harvey. Have you ever thought about re- you know, writing a book? Before I actually retired, uh, you know, every once in a while somebody would ask me, uh, when I'm, you know, are you ever going to write a, re- uh, a book when you retire? And I always said, yeah, you know, I, I really have no intention of doing that, and, and I really didn't. Um, and then I retired and thought, you know what, I might write a book. <laughs> you should. <laughs> I, 
I, uh, I, I, I think I would like to do that. I don't. I, I quite frankly, I'm not sure where to go from here. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, um, you know, as far as uh, getting somebody to help me uh, write it and, and that type of thing. But I, yes, I would be interested in doing that. That's awesome. Have you read any of those seven books I just mentioned? I haven't read all of them, but I've read most of them. Yeah. Nice. I like it. I like it. All right. Well, uh, let's go way back then. We talked a little bit about your childhood, but let's let's do a little trip down memory lane. So Eugene, Oregon, home of the Ducks. I hear you're a huge uh, Oregon Ducks fan. How do you like uh, my Nebraska boy Dana Altman out there doing basketball for you guys? Oh, Dana's been awesome. You know, and 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 Dana, when they were searching for a coach, uh, they had gone through a couple big names trying to, uh, you know, get. get get some, a big name out in Eugene and, and were rebuffed or whatever. And so, uh, uh, you know, they, they, they uh, uh, settled on Dana Altman. And quite quite frankly, we, you know, we weren't sure who Dana Altman was. <laughs> but um, I'll tell you, we know now. I mean, he has been phenomenal at Oregon. Um, and he is, it seems, almost every year has a whole new roster, you know, with the one and duns and, and, and the transfers and that kind of stuff. But uh, he gets, he seems to get the, the, the best out of the talent he has, and he uh, he always seems to have teams that, uh, as the season goes, they just get better and better. And so, uh, you know, they 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 had a tough year this year. Uh, injuries really hurt them, and then they just came on the last. They won the last eight games in a row or something. Put a you know won the Pac-12 tournament. That's the only way they're going to get into the big dance. Mm-hmm. And they got in, and uh, and they did well. So. Um, we really like Dan. He does a great job. Absolutely. So high school, Sheldon High School in Eugene, what kind of activities did you do? Were you involved with baseball? Did you play sports growing up and all that? Well, you know, I, grew, I loved baseball. And, and, and growing up, uh, I played. I, I, I was convinced I would be the first baseman for the Dodgers when I got older. <laughs> the, the, the only problem, uh, Dave, was, quite frankly, I couldn't hit, run, throw, or a field. So... Um, <laughs> kind of had to change my plans a little bit so I started uh, umpiring when I was 15 but at Sheldon um, I was uh, I played uh, percussion in the band um, uh, I was president of the band my junior and senior year uh, <laughs> I uh, I was the I was the uh, morning uh, the morning announcements every morning uh, would, would give those over the uh, intercom I, I was the MC for the all the uh, pep rallies and Anytime they needed, uh, you know, a, a master of ceremony, you know, I, I like the, the prom and that kind of stuff. So um, that was kind of the voice of Sheldon for a couple of years. I like that. And then you mentioned age 15, you started umpiring. So how did that come to be? Was that just like you and your friends decided to do it part time because you needed money? Or how did that end up, you know, happening? Well, you know, uh, after, uh, you know, the, the year previous uh, from when I started umpiring, I, you know, that was. I knew that would be the last year I'd ever play any competitive baseball because I was going into high school and you either have a varsity or JV team and, and I certainly wasn't going to be on any of those. So uh, a, a friend of mine that actually uh, had umpired the year before, he said, you know, you should think about doing that. You can make some uh, make some money and uh, you're still involved in the game. And, 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 you know, at age 15, you're, you know, if you're not playing, and I'm too young to be coaching, but, you know, I, I thought, you know what, I'll give it a shot. Uh, umpiring, I, I I know that I I used to watch the umpires quite a bit because you know I was on the bench quite a bit, so I had the time. Um, so I thought you know I thought yeah I'm going to give that a shot. And you're supposed to be uh, 16, and I talked to Commissioner Ken Larson uh, into I you know I turned 16 in August, and this was in you know back in before that in March or whatever when the season started, and uh, I uh, I talked him into to giving me a chance, and I and I just. I loved it. Uh, I just, it was, 
I just really enjoy the challenge every day. Every every game's different. You know, it, it, you you strive to be uh, you know perfect, uh, knowing full well you'll never be. Um, and and it's just uh, it, you know it just was it, it was in my blood. I, I didn't know it until I <laughs> until I did it, but it was in my blood. And uh, and I picked up like I said. Uh, a couple of years uh, after that, I picked up football and basketball, and, was, and so I was officiating year-round. Okay, so you're working at the radio station then. What made you decide, hey, you know what, I'm going to go to umpire school. I'm going to chase this full-time. How did you get the connection to, to know to do that, and what made you decide to, to take that plunge? Well, uh, I, 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 you know, I... I did rather well at umpiring. I mean, I, it was it was something that I that I was uh, you know advancing in. And and uh, another friend that was a, an umpire that I had worked with a few times, uh, he was a few years older than I was, but he had gone to umpire school, uh, you know, a couple years earlier, and he, and he he didn't get a job out of it, but he said, man, it's just a great experience. You learn so much about umpiring, and and it's just dissected down to you know footwork and everything, and. Uh, and he said, uh, "I think you would. I think you would love it." And he goes, "Plus, you'll come back after umpire school." Uh, University of Oregon had a had a team then, uh, uh, and then they dropped it right after that. But uh, but anyway, you know, he said you'll be getting. You know, after umpire school, you you come back. You you're going to be you know 21 years old. You, you'll be you'll be picking up some maybe some small college, maybe move into uh, D1. You know, and and could really uh, open up uh, opportunities. Uh, you know, umpiring baseball, and so. Uh, I thought, well, that's you know, that that sounds interesting. I uh, looked into it. Uh, I delayed one year to go because uh, umpire school at that time there was a school. Uh, Bill Kinnaman had two schools. One was in Florida, and one which is traditionally where the umpire schools are at, uh, and then uh, he had one in San Bernardino, California. And to run uh, both schools, uh, uh, he didn't want them overlapping or overlapping very little. So the usually the uh, you know the schools. Well, anyway, he staggered the schools. So uh, we started the day after Christmas, and I I thought I'm not going to go. I would I would have been 20 years old in '79 at umpire school, and I thought I'm not going to go and have to spend New Year's Eve at a <laughs> because I can't get into any place. I'm going to I'm going to delay it one year. So that shows you my priorities, Davo, uh, at the time. Uh, I had to go to umpire school when I was 21, so I could go to the bar on New Year's Eve. Okay, you know, I'm a little bit, <laughs> so I'm not sure if that's you know the best bio, but uh, um, anyway, I went uh, I went to 1980 and uh, the class of '81, and again, I just uh, I just uh, enjoyed the heck out of it. I, I um, there, the reason there's no San Bernardino school, and I think there was a, it was only about two years after that. Um, that they shut down that school is because the attendance was so low. Usually at umpire school, the ones in Florida, you would get anywhere from, you know, 85, 90 to 125, sometimes even 150 students. And uh, the year I went, we had 27. <laughs> wow. Uh, which was great for instruction, you know, and, 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 and getting more personalized instruction. The top five of the 27 would be sent to the one-week advanced school in Florida, and I ended up fifth. Wow, look at that. Okay, and then, so that, you know, one thing led to another, and you had the job waiting for you at the station, but it ended up that you got hired um, to be a minor league umpire then starting in 1981, from what I've read. So 81 to 85 then, kind of walk us through those four years and, and what leagues you were in and what that was like. Well, I, uh, um, you know, getting out of umpire school in, 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 the, in the top five, for in my case, uh, getting to the advanced school was a, a huge hurdle that not. The advanced school that was all the, the best uh, uh, students from both the Florida schools and the five of us from California. There were 13 spring training, uh, minor league spring training openings that year. Um, so the top 13 got one of those assignments. Um, 
they didn't list us one through 13. You just knew you were in the top 13 if you got an assignment. I did get one with the Padres in Yuma, Arizona. And so I was on my way. I uh, it was one of those things where, you know, an umpire, a professional umpiring career is a very small window to, to get into it if you're going to try to do it. You have to go to umpire school. Quite, you know, quite frankly, you need to go to umpire school before about the age of 28, um, or the odds are you're, you know, you're not you're not going to you're not going to get up there uh, or, or get a job out of it. Um, so there's that window, and then and then if you actually get in the minor leagues like I did, you know, that's that small window that you're only going to get this opportunity basically one time. So I, you know, my thought was I've always got radio to go back to. Um, I, I had worked a little bit with a, a, a sports youth program at Eugene called uh, Eugene Sports Program, but I was their commissioner of officials, and and I had that that I could always uh, you know back up. And so I, I I didn't feel uh, you know that I mean I, I knew I had stuff to do uh, if this didn't work out, but I also knew that this was an opportunity that I had to pursue because I wouldn't have it ever again, and I would kick myself if I didn't. Um, so I just thought to myself, you know what, I'll ride this wave as as long as I can. And at some point, I may fall off, or they may kick me off, and uh, and then uh, you know it was a great opp- you know experience and opportunity. Well, as, as luck would have it, the wave went all the way to the big leagues. But um, I was I was fortunate in the big league or in the minor leagues. I, I only spent five years in the minor leagues. That's that's going through the system pretty quickly. Uh, I started off in the Northwest League in '81. I uh, I was going, scheduled to go back to the Northwest League. The Northwest League starts in June. It's a short A league. Uh, I was scheduled to go back in 82 uh, in June when there was a uh, movement in the umpire ranks, and uh, I was assigned uh, to the California League, which had already started in April. It's a long A league, uh, definitely a promotion. So I, I, I went to the California League about uh, middle of May uh, and finished the, you know, the season there. Went to Instructional League that year in, in Arizona. Instructional League is it's a, the system's a little bit different now, but back then um, there was like eight umpires who go to Instructional League in Arizona. They all sat it in, in Florida, and that's 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 where my career really started to take off. The two years I went to Instructional League, where you only have eight umpires and you're and you're seen a lot, and, and you get to work from from like mid September until Halloween. Um, uh, you really learned. I really learned a lot there. That that instructional league. The next year, I was promoted to Double A, Texas League. Uh, in '83, I worked a full year in the Texas League. I again went to instructional league uh, in the fall of '83. '84, uh, I started back in the Texas League in Double A. And in May, uh, they they had told me I would be the first uh, umpire promoted to Triple A, and I'd be going to the Coast League. And that was good because I knew a lot of the umpires in the Coast League. Of course, I knew the cities in the Coast League. Uh, I was from Eugene, but Portland was in the Coast League. And, uh, so I get a call. I was in San, uh, San Antonio, and uh, uh, Barney Deary uh, was director of umpires at that time in the minor leagues. He said, that, congratulations, uh, you are going to AAA. You need to report to Des Moines, Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> well, I said, well, Mr. Deary, when did Des Moines uh, move to the Coast League? And he said, well, they didn't. You're going to the American Association. Um, and... And so, in a way, Davo, I was I was kind of disappointed from the standpoint that I wasn't going to be going closer to home, and, and to you know, and I I didn't hardly knew anybody of the umpires of the staff in the association. I knew the names, I just didn't know the guys. But uh, as it turns out, that was again, you know, sometimes it just dumb luck. That that was my my break um, because my third game behind the plate in AAA. Uh, 
uh, Dick Butler, who was the American League supervisor, was in, was in Louisville. Uh, he was with Mike uh, Fitzpatrick, who was a minor league supervisor. They were there to watch Larry Young and mm-hmm. Tim Cheetah, who mm-hmm. were on. I was on that crew, um, and I happened to have the middle game of the three games he was watching, uh, and my game went 15 innings. Uh, when I say I, I had the plate, that middle game, and my game went 15 innings, um, and Dick Butler, who had no idea who I was, I just got there. He said, who is this guy? He said, well, that's Dale Scott. He just got here. Uh, this is his third plate job, and so immediately I was on the board. Uh, the next stop was Evansville, Indiana. They had a American League supervisor there to see us. Next stop was Indianapolis. They had another American League supervisor there. And and within uh, about two and a half weeks of me getting the AAA, the American League bought my option. Wow. Wow. Talk about some good karma, some serendipity. I like that. Well, uh, you know, it just so happened I happened to be on a crew where, where they had two prospects that they were looking at, and I just happened to have the plate when, when he was in the stands, and I just happened to have – uh, you know, uh, and, uh, not necessarily ordinary game. You know, a 15 inning game that obviously the pitchers were doing pretty well because nobody could score. So, <laughs> I, uh, it, you know, it's just it, sometimes you got to have a little luck. Yeah, for sure. Well, okay. How about um, talking about the minor leagues? How about travel stories? I talked to hundreds of minor league players. You have any classic uh, travel blunders or travel stories from your minor league days? Well, you know, travel. Uh, the North uh, Northwest League wasn't too bad, and the Cal League. The Cal League was was uh really kind of a piece of cake we we would have uh apartments in modesto and at the, the way the league was set up then out of the 10 teams we could commute seven of them um now a couple of the commutes was you know it's a two hour each way but still it was uh, it was certainly worth it and uh, saved us money but but then i went to the texas league <laughs> and welcome to travel uh that league stretched from uh, el paso texas to jackson mississippi wow um and at the time I was there, it went from, uh, you know, like Beaumont, Texas, and San Antonio, Texas, up to uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and, you know, Little Rock, Arkansas. It was, uh, it was a very spread. I think Jackson to El Paso was 1,000 miles, so just over 1,000 miles. And uh, you, you did some traveling there. there. It was not uncommon to uh, finish your getaway night game at, uh, you know, 10 or whatever. You, you showered, pack up jump in the car it might be 11 o'clock and you drive uh you know seven eight nine hours uh to the next city getting in to your hotel at, at you know eight or nine in the morning praying you can get checked in at that time because you know, oh yeah sometimes that's not even ready um and then uh sleeping all day and then uh, getting up to go to your you know, next game at that ballpark at seven o'clock, and you're you're you get up and leave at five fifteen and grab a burger on the way and uh, and jump right in it. That's that was that's uh, that was not uncommon uncommon whatsoever. But um, you know, we we uh, you just did it. You know, you were young and 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 you were happy to be there. And of course, you you know you'd switch off driving and that kind of stuff, and you just did it. And uh, it, you know, it, it, at the time it. It was just uh, that's just how this thing worked. You know, if somebody told me I had to do that now, I, I think I'd gone back to radio. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Um, <laughs> but another great career, radio. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. You know. You know. It's funny, David, because I used to. I used to. You know, the minor leagues. You know, baseball to me, but, but there was a lot of similarities. Ready. You start off in smaller towns, mm-hmm. smaller markets. You're trying to work up to bigger markets, mm-hmm. uh, with you know, with bigger pay or better pay, and and. and and uh, you know that kind of stuff. And it, 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 there was a lot of similarities, or at least in my mind, there was because uh, of the way you know the system was set up. And and, and so uh, 
uh, I, I guess uh, I guess I just always wanted a job where I had to start off small and go big or something. I don't know. Thousand percent. I've I've always said that too. It's funny you said that. Um. So 1985. You know, you got your cup of coffee that year up here in KC, which we'll talk about in a second. But American Association. You mentioned that. So I'm assuming you saw Omaha a lot. So what do you remember about Rosenblatt Stadium in good old Omaha? Well, I remember you know the site of the College World Series. I re- I remember in in Omaha we stay. I, I couldn't tell you where it was. But it was about a thirty-minute drive to the ballpark. Um, sometimes for a you know a night game, it was it was west of. Uh, if I remember correctly, it wasn't Rosenblatt almost on the on the border with Iowa. Yeah, it was. It was like yeah. a mile. Were you like in Papillion or something or Millard or? Yeah, so we were by a big mall that was west of of, of the downtown area in some you know suburb or whatever. I, I don't remember, but I just all I remember is you know in most of the cities. Um, we our hotels were relatively close to the ballpark, you know, a ten minute drive, fifteen maybe. And this one, it, it, but part of the reason it was uh, a little bit longer, or it just seemed longer, is because, uh, you know, for a seven o'clock game, you're you're kind of driving in afternoon traffic, um, you know, when you're going there. So, I, but but, but uh, you know, Omaha, I just always remember that you always uh, saw the College World Series and there you are at that uh, at that same stadium. But I didn't get the flavor of Omaha like I did some other uh, cities because I didn't I didn't stay in downtown. I was in a suburb. Okay. Yeah, the, the zoo was out there. I'm sure you remember that. Remember the colored seats? The sections were orange and red and blue. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. I I have a couple of those chairs actually in my in my sports room, which is kind of cool. Um, I understand that the, the, the new stadium is fantastic. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. Um, okay. So, like I said, your first major league game that same year, '85, you did one game. It was August 19th, and as fate would have it, serendipitous. Uh, the Royals here in Kansas City against the Tigers. So before we talk about that game, take us back to the moment you got that call to the big league. So where were you at? How did you find out? Who told you? What was that moment like? Well, it was it was it was it, it, most of the time when you when you get that call up, it's 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 like a guy got injured the night before or something, or or or, or a guy's wife went into labor or something, and and so you you got the call and you had to get going, you know, to wherever you're going. This was one of those things where the crew that was there. Jim Evans' crew with uh, uh, his crew was uh, uh, Evans and uh, Nick Bremigan and uh, Ted Hendry and uh, Dan Morrison. Well, they were they were they had their week off, and they were supposed to have the following Monday off after the week off, and then go to Oakland. And I, I, I take that back. I'm sorry. They, they were working, but Nick Bremigan was having his week off, and then he was supposed to also have Monday off and then go to Oakland. So instead of bringing and, and the, the game in Kansas City on the 19th was a makeup game from an earlier rainout, so the teams were just coming in for one game and going. And so uh, Evans' crew picked it up on their way to Oakland. From, I don't forget where they're coming from. But instead of having Bremican come from home uh, a day early uh, on his way to Oakland, they said, just just go to Oakland on Tuesday like you planned on doing it. We'll, we'll have somebody fill in for you that one game. And so they called me. Uh, the game was on the 19th. They called me about the, I think it was the day after my, my birthday is the 14th. And I, I turned uh, 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 26, and uh, I, I think it was the, the very next day, uh, I got a call, and they said, uh, on the 19th, on, on Monday, you will be in Kansas City. You're gonna, or, excuse me, yeah, Kansas City. I was in, Actually, I was in Omaha uh, going to Kansas City, and he said, uh, you're just going to work third base. You don't need to bring your gear or anything. Just bring your uh, uniform, um, fly, you know, we want you to fly in uh, Monday. It's a night game, and it's a, like a 12-minute flight or something. I don't know. It's very <laughs> short. Um, 
you know, fly in uh, Monday morning and uh, work the game that night, and then you'll fly back to Omaha, uh, you know, Tuesday, and that was that was going to be it. And so, you know, I got that call, and I was thrilled. I mean, I was absolutely, uh, you know, just uh, over the over the top. I mean, this, this was this was. This was working the game in the big leagues, a legitimate game. I, I'd worked, uh, you know, America League spring training in in '85, um, which was, you know, a thrill also to, to be doing that. But this was the stuff. And remember that in 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 '85, um, the the Royals won the World Series, um, and in '84 the Tigers were the World Champions. So uh, you had the uh, you know the, the current champions, and of course we didn't know it at the time. But then we had the future champions uh, uh, on the on the field that day. So let me let me tell you, uh, you know, I got that call and I was thrilled, and I had a few days to, to digest it because I wasn't, you know, it wasn't a, one of those things where I had to go immediately. But I, you know, it, when you go up to the big leagues, one of the thrills is that you, uh, when you're flying up to whatever city you're going to. You fly first class, so I got to fly first class for that twenty-minute flight <laughs> <laughs> from from uh, oh, you know I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, but uh, so I get to the you know meet the guys and we go to the ballpark and and you know Royal Stadium is just gorgeous and it still is a beautiful stadium and uh, we're in the locker room and you know and, and we're, I, I knew Ted Hendry a little bit. He's a native Oregonian and, and I, I had uh, uh, I had met him before and. And I knew Morris a little bit because I, I'd worked some spring training games with him. So anyway, uh, you know, I, I'm starting to get you know dressed to, to, to go out there, and I put my uh, T-shirt on before I put on my umpire shirt. And uh, Jim Evans has got a very dry sense of humor. Anyway, he's the crew chief. He he looked over and he said, uh, "Do you uh, do you always wear your your shirt backwards?" I put my shirt on backwards. <laughs> <laughs> Just being the cool cool cucumber before the game and uh and uh you know i, I put it on backwards and so he said did you always do that and i go well yeah i always do don't you guys you know <laughs> like you know trying to act like i'm not nervous at all which i was um so then we go out on the field and and and, and we do the, the, the you know the ground rules the lineup cards and, and i run out to third base and i'm i'm looking around and i'm just taking it all in like wow this is really happening and george brett of course was playing third so he comes, you know, they come out to, to warm up before the first pitch, and uh, he goes, uh, hey, Dale. You know, and I thought, wow, he, he knows my name. Of course, now, now I realize they all have a little cheat sheet in the dugout, so they, <laughs> they know who's umpiring the game. But um, you know, I thought that was pretty cool. And they, they go, hey, hey, George. And he said, uh, is this your first game? And <laughs> immediately I, I, I looked down like I had a wet spot or something. <laughs> like, what? what how'd you know? And he goes, he just started laughing. He goes, I, I just haven't seen you around. I figured it might be your first game. I said, yeah, it is. He goes, well, you know, congratulations. Welcome to the American League. And, uh, and I, you know, that was just a thrill for me for sure. I love that. Okay. It's funny you mentioned George because I was going to you know, make a little stupid radio joke here. So you wore number 39 your first two years in the big leagues, then number five the back half yeah. of your career. So, of course, I was going to say that's – we're just going to go ahead and assume since we're Kansas City-based that was only because of George Brett, right? Wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> funny story about the number, by the way. Um, my second year uh, in the big leagues, I, I, I just had a very, very tough year at uh, – one of those things where if one thing went wrong a thousand things went wrong and my confidence was shot and 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 all this other stuff so that that and there's a whole story there but but after the uh like in in the in the i don't know uh, like december of of, of 87 before the 88 season which would have been my third season um 
uh, Marty Springstead, the supervisor of American League umpires, called me and said, hey, Scotty, he said, uh, uh, we had some uh, numbers open up. He goes, I've got number five. Would you like to go from 39 to five? And I said, well, yes, Marty, I would. I, I, I think it's appropriate since I'm in the umpire protection program. Uh, <laughs> I said, I, I, after that year I had, I, I prefer that I had a new number, and if you would call me Sean from now on, um, <laughs> maybe they won't notice. Uh, yeah, they won't know it's me, and uh, they'll, they'll believe me this, this coming year. But uh, um, uh, he laughed, and, and I said, but I would like to go to number five, Marty, because I, I, I'm, not a, you know, I'm not a math whiz, but at the time the American League uh, – had a staff of 32 umpires, and I was number 39. So you figure it out, you know. So I, I'll, I'll take five. There you go. I like it. Okay. So yeah, you became a full-time umpire in '86. Um, 116 games total that first season. Um, so you, you mentioned '87 was tough. Without super detail, was it, you know just some bad calls or just you know what happened in '87? Yeah, it was. You know, um, you know when you're when you're your first few years in, in the major leagues or any major sport quite frankly you're going to get tested a lot people the, the players managers and coaches they they frankly they basically just you know don't believe you <laughs> um until you can you know until they've got some body of work that they can see that that uh that they're you know that they're going to start to believe you but so you, you know i had that uh, which is not uh, foreign to any new umpire but i it was it was kind of a the perfect storm i was i was i was uh, my credibility uh, with them was suspect because of of who I was. Then I was just just having a tough year. Uh, no one was believing me on, on the pitches I got right or plays I got right. And then the ones I was missing, which which I, I, I missed a few, um, just uh, reemphasized why they didn't believe me on the ones I got right. Um, and then it was uh, one of those strange things where it, it seemed throughout that season that if we ever had a weird play, we had the, uh, an obstruction or an interference or a spectator interference or something, something that isn't, you don't see every day uh, and that kind of thing, it seemed like I was the one that had it. And, and so it, 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 once, you know, officiating is confidence. You have to have confidence in yourself because uh, you're going to get, you know, criticism from a lot of different areas and you got to be uh, strong enough to to understand that hey you're, you deserve to be there you, you know you know it's not that you realize we realize we make mistakes here and there but you can't let them tear you down and uh because then you can't umpire or officiate uh, at that caliber and, and i and quite frankly i you know my confidence was just taking a beating and it, it was it was just uh, kind of snowballing and uh, marty springstead uh, you know, quite frankly, right before the All-Star break, we were in New York. He called me in. He said, you know, how, how do you think you're doing, Scotty? And, of course, I wasn't gonna, I knew I was struggling. But I, I said, well, you know, Marty, I don't think I'm having an All-Star year, but, you know, I think I'm doing okay. And he said, well, well, you know, you're not. And we need to change some things. If we can't get you back on the right track, we're going to have to fire you. Wow. Well, that's a that's a uh, that's a shock, um, and that uh, will wake you up. But but Marty Marty wasn't in the in the you know that position to try to fire me. He was in that position to try to get what he has saw the, the good part of me as far as an umpire and get that back on track. And that's what he did at the end of the year. He, he sent me to instructional league in Florida, uh, where he lives in Sarasota, so I could work on a different plate stance. And then he had me work a month in uh, the Dominican Republic, uh, where you get several plate jobs in. Uh, to work where I'm not under the pressure of, 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 of you know, 
the next time I'd be working games again would be spring training and right back with the same players and managers and coaches that don't believe me. So he wanted me to get some games under my belt away from that situation, which I did. And then I, he put me with Rich Garcia, who was one of the best uh, – uh, well, he's a great umpire and crew chief, but he's also an outstanding instructor. He can see things and he can really explain things for a guy. And so all those things, Marty, uh, you know, to try to get me to succeed, and, and it, as, it, as it turns out, it helped to turn my career around, and I, and I, and I uh, prospered after that. But, uh, yeah, that was a tough year. How long do you feel like it took until managers and coaches kind of said, okay, this guy actually is pretty good? Is this like early 90s till this you know, happens? Does it take several years, or how long does that take? that uh you know my second year was tough my third year was was when i started to get back on track it seemed like my fourth year it was sometimes sometime in that fourth season where you would have that steel play or you would have that uh, three two called strike three with uh, the bases loaded or whatever and you know i was just kind of accustomed to you know i'd make my out call or my striker or whatever and just kind of almost look over the shoulder like you know I'm sure they're coming, you know. I'm sure, I'm sure someone's coming out. I'm sure they're, the, the dugout's going goofy, and and all of a sudden they weren't they weren't yelling. Uh, you know, not not every time, but you know they weren't. It, it, the, the times they were always were yelling. All of a sudden they weren't. It was like, well, you know, maybe maybe they're starting to believe me. Maybe they maybe they're starting to see that that you know I, I'm hustling out here. I'm working hard. Uh, I, I'm 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 you know they're very unforgiving if you miss a play because you're a little lazy or you weren't hustling or you're or you're uh, you know you're, you're you're a little too arrogant. You know, <laughs> there's not a lot of give uh, by a play, and, and quite frankly, there shouldn't be. Um, but but if if you're working your tail off and, and they see that you're doing that day in and day out, you've got to remember these guys see you all throughout the year. I mean, you're seeing teams, especially when we weren't, you know, we were just working the American League, um, and uh, you know, so so it was about that midway through that fourth year that all of a sudden uh, they just weren't chirping like they were. That's a good thing. Well, um, so who were the – you mentioned Rich Garcia. Who were some of the other umpires and, I guess, the main umpires you worked on crews with throughout your career? Well, I worked with uh, Richie, I think, uh, four out of five years early. And he, he, the, 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 uh, there were three crew chiefs that uh, in my career before I became a crew chief that really uh, – I worked with, like, five different crew chiefs, but there were three that really helped me uh, – Richie Garcia early when I was struggling and got my confidence back and 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 and, and was a good X's and O's uh, on the field uh, instructor and, and and help you out that way. Um, Dave Phillips, I was with Dave Phillips four out of five years, I believe, and uh, uh, Davey taught me a, a, how to a, how to handle. Uh, a crew, and, and Richie did too, but Davey had a little bit different uh, philosophy. He, you know, Davey, Davey didn't want to be his three crewmates. He wanted a crew that was upbeat. Uh, we we have a tendency to have some guys uh, on the staff um, that are, uh, you know, Debbie Downer, and, and, and everything is, is wrong. You know, the, the, the league's not treating us right. The union needs to do this, and, uh, you know, this and that. Uh, the, you know, that manager is out of control, blah, blah, blah. And it just seems it's, it's, it's always negative, negative, negative. And and not you know there's a few it's just not everybody but but uh, Davey hated that <laughs> he wanted he wanted guys because we get enough of that with the media and you know out in the field and everything else we certainly don't need it in our locker room um, and so he you know he he got me to that philosophy that I want to be surrounded on my crew with with guys that are upbeat and fun and and you know we'll we'll, we'll go through the wars and we'll have the situations and then we'll handle them and we'll we'll work as a team but 
but we'll, we're not going to just dwell on stuff uh, because that, that, I, I don't want to do that. And uh, so that, and I use that philosophy from from that point forward. And then uh, Joe Brigman, even though I only worked with Joe one full year in '99, what a pivotal year it was! It was right before our uh, uh, blowing up of our union and, and the resignation ploy and all that other stuff that uh, about ruined it did ruin some careers and uh, uh, ruined a lot of relationships, but. Uh, uh, Joe, being with him that year, was I learned a lot about just the nuts and bolts of not only he was a fantastic umpire and a great instructor, but also I learned a lot about the nuts and bolts of just the inner workings of our union, uh, of how we negotiate, how we uh, approach the league, and, and that type of stuff. So those are the three crew chiefs uh, that I really uh, were pivotal in, 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 in making me the crew chief that I was uh, for, for the last 16 years of my career. Perfect segue. That was my next question. 16 years as a crew chief. So explain to our listeners what the main duties are of a crew chief and how big of an honor that is. Well, it's a big honor, um, and uh, it's a lot of responsibility. You, you, you know, first of all, you, you're, 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 the, you know, you're the captain of the ship. You're the, you're the, you're the, you're respons- whatever happens on that crew, good or bad, you're responsible for it. You may not, you may not even have anything to do with it uh, as far as you know, your call or, or that kind of thing. But whatever happens, you, you're you're responsible for it. The league, you're the conduit from uh, from the league office to your crew. Uh, they, the league office has an issue with something, or if they um, they're trying to get all the crews to do this or do that or whatever it is. Uh, they're going to come to me. I'm the one uh, to to present it to the crew. Obviously, the crew chief has the responsibilities of uh, putting the, the tarp on, uh, inclement weather, of uh, t- taking the tarp off. Uh, you know, calling the game if uh, if we can't continue because of weather. Um, if we have a, a uh, you know throwing incident, and we have teams fighting. I mean, uh, the crew chief is is the uh, is the guy that's. Uh, Going to be looked at by the league to, to to get back you know control back in that game and and frankly by by the people on the field uh, they they're they're looking at you uh, as, they're looking all, at all four umpires but they look at the crew chief as the as the uh, voice of reason so to speak um, and then uh, you know you you have the quote unquote ceremonial duties I would call them but but I mean it's, you know if if we have a situation or an incident. Uh, usually, the crew chief will be the one that addresses the media. He might uh, also address it with the umpire that had the call or something, depending on what the situation is. Um, but you, you need to have, or it helps for sure, to have a little media savvy uh, and, and know how to, uh, how to uh, you know, answer questions and sound bites and, and those types of things. But um, there's a lot of responsibility. You know, just, just calling a game before it's a, a regulation game is millions of dollars. Uh, uh, you know the gates. Uh, you know the, the, they got to reschedule the teams. They've got to, uh, you know, rain check. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a big deal, and especially uh, when you have, uh, uh, you know, at that time you were playing 162 games in 180 days. There's not not a lot of uh, you know days that you could if you have a like that makeup game I had in, in Kansas City. That had that had to be a day off for both teams. It had to be a travel situation that wasn't too. Uh, you know, strenuous for one of the teams, uh, to, just to be able to meet for that one game to make up a game that was rained out, you know, Lord knows in April or May or whatever it was. So uh, there's a lot that goes into that, and that's a big a responsibility, a big decision for a crew chief to make. Uh, but that's that's your decision to make. 
Okay, so you umpired three World Series. Let's talk about some of your career accomplishments. 98, 01, and 04. So 2001 I wanted to talk about in particular. It lasted, you know, it was two weeks delayed, I guess, from September 11th. Had the Yankees, had the walk-off from Luis Gonzalez for the Diamondbacks. But uh, the symbolic importance of that series. So I'm sure you probably watched nine innings from Ground Zero on HBO about that series and George sure. W. Bush's you know first pitch in Game 3 that's legendary. So kind of take us back to what you remember most, though, as an American about working that World Series and that World Series as a whole. What, what were the emotions like, the tensions, and the feeling during those 10 days? And then how special was that World Series for you? Well, it was very special. First of all, that, that documentary that they did, they, they came out to Portland to talk to Jimmy Joyce, who I, was on the crew with me. And unfortunately, I was out of town when they did that because they wanted to talk to me, too. I, I, uh, I would have loved that opportunity. It was an unbelievable time for this country, obviously, but uh, for New York specifically. Um, and, you know, I, I, think, I think it might be the only time uh, that, you know, the Yankees are loved by Yankee fans and pretty much hated by everybody else. Um, and, it, you know, that was one time where collectively I think a lot of the country was pulling for the Yankees, mm-hmm. just, just for New Yorkers, you know. Um, and, and, and as, you know, the irony is they, <laughs> they, they didn't win it, but, and they've won so many. But um, uh, it was it, – it, it just – there was a there was there was that feeling in the air i don't know how to describe it it's just you knew that this was a very um very historic very tragic very uh confusing time for all of us and to have the series uh have the yankees make it to the world series and uh, that year, especially, it was it was unbelievable. You know, when when the president came for Game Three, that was my game behind the plate, uh, and we knew uh, that he was coming, and we knew that uh, you know everybody's security was going to be insane, and we knew that uh, I, I think it was an eight o'clock game or whatever. But I, I think Jimmy Joyce and I got there at at four <laughs> four thirty, which is really early. Um, but you know, because because of what of, of security and everything else, and you know, to to, to uh, put it in context a little bit, at Old Yankee Stadium where we walked in at the press gate, we'd go down a flight of stairs, and there would uh, this is a normal game. There would be a, a security person, at the, of course, at the top of the stairs and at the bottom. Then you go down this long hallway, and at the very end of the hallway, there might be one guy there. Then you take a left, you go down another long hallway, and there might be one there. And that's when you take a right, and that's where the Yankee clubhouse entrance is. So there's, you know, uh, two or three security there. You walk right past that, another, I don't know, uh, maybe 30 yards or something, and there was our um, umpire room, and there would be a security guy there. So, so you might have uh, five or six that whole journey uh, to, our, to our room. Uh, that night, when the president was there, there was security that whole journey every, like, 15 feet. It was they, they. It was just you know lined with with security. The, the, that place was so clamped down. We walk into our locker room. There's a gentleman sitting there. We don't know who he is, but he immediately uh, uh, identifies himself. He's a Secret Service agent. And since the president was going to throw out the first pitch, and and he was explaining to us, he goes, we we. You know, we frankly kind of hate this <laughs> uh, because it's a time where the president's all alone. There's nobody by him. Um, now, granted, you know, everybody's the security to, just to get in the stadium and all that, but they just, that's just so against their nature, right? Um, 
So he was going to dress up with us uh, in an umpire uniform and go out on the field with us, and one of our guys was going to hang back in the tunnel. They also had a Secret Service uh, dressed up as a Yankee uh, 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 field crew, the, you know, the ground crew. Um, and, and I think there was two of them dressed up as ground crew that were going to be out there, so they would be, you know, closer to the president than, than, uh, than you know, the regular Secret Service guy. He was, he was, he had, he had, we saw him as he was getting dressed. He had, you know, a uh, bulletproof vest. He had, he had, uh, a, a, you know, a handgun. He had a, a, another guy. I mean, he, he had you know, the, the wire to there. He, he was, it, it was so interesting. Um, he told us as we were, you know, because we were there so early, uh, they had a mobile dirty bomb uh, medical lab. If, if that had happened, they could whisk the president away and, and, and actually operate at the same time. They had, um, you know, they had, uh, you know, snipers everywhere. They had a, uh, uh, you know, emergency. Uh, I mean, they, the, the, the security normally for a president is insane. And because of 9-11 and because this was in New York, it was it was even more insane. It was just, uh, you just felt it, you know. And, and, and you add all that to the fact that I'm, I'm, mentally try to prepare for a for a you know game three plate game uh, in, in the world series which has got its own uh uh sets of uh you know of uh, things that go through your mind so it was really quite something but anyway he uh he had a, a headphone in uh, in his ear he said the president he, i mean he was you know everyone's ready to go the president has just left the white house you know the president's uh, uh marine one has just left the president's like you know maybe he's kind of giving us updates so finally uh uh, he uh, he said, we're, you know, we weren't 100% sure if the president was going to come to our room. And so usually they do. A lot of times that's the last room before they go out into the under the field because it's one of the most secure rooms <laughs> in the stadium uh, for obvious reasons. It's, it's usually very close to the field access. It's a smaller room. It's not as big as the clubhouse where you have many more, you know, bodies. And so uh, usually that does happen, but, but we weren't sure. Uh, and suddenly we're sitting there now. I, I believe the, the like starting uh, pitch, uh, first pitch was supposed to be like at 8:25. And I remember uh, all of a sudden he goes, "The president will be here at 7:58." Oh, <laughs> <don't know>. okay. <laughs> that seemed rather rather uh, precise, but sure, sure as heck, uh, that's that's what he arrived. Now, Davo, I got to tell you, uh, the way Yankee say, uh, the, our our clubhouse is set up. You walk in the main door, uh, and you walk right into the to the big room where we had our lockers and our and our trunks and everything. Right opposite of that door that you walk in, the main entrance, the only entrance from the hallway. Uh, opposite of that was the doorway to where you go to the right, to the showers, and to the left, you go to the facilities. Well, it just so happened that when the president arrived, I was uh, minding my own business over at the facilities at a, at a urinal. So um, when he walks in, he of course he's got his own you know, Secret Service uh, detail with him. And what they do is they walk in and, and immediately one guy goes to that opposite opening and just sees who's in that area. You just want, they want to know where everybody's at, you know. And uh, even though there's already a, a guy there, a Secret Service guy there, you know, all that, that's just what they do. And it's, it's amazing to watch. So so I'm standing at the urinal and he goes, <clears throat> you have a visitor. And I kind of look back and go, yes, yeah, I'll, I'll be right there. You know, I'm, I'm going to wash my hands. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> I was like, this is awkward. Um, and so um, I was the last umpire to, to, 
to uh, you know say hello to, to the president because he had already uh, gone through everybody. And I said, uh, Mr. President, how are you, Dale Scott? And, and he and when he when he owned the Texas Rangers even before he was governor, he used to sit right there by where the ball boy would be. And when I was working the plate in Texas, which you know. Uh, could get rather warm there. I uh, sometimes the ball boy was busy between innings, so I just walk over to pick up a couple baseballs, and he'd go, uh, "Yeah, it looks like you're sweating a little bit." <laughs> I said, yeah, you think? You know, I, was, I uh, wasn't used to that heat from a boy from Oregon. But so anyway, I, I said, "Mr. President Dale Scott," he goes, "Dale, yeah, I know you." He goes, "He goes, you're the one that's always sweating at, at, at Arlington State." <laughs> I said, "Yeah, that, that that's me," and. Uh, and I was wearing an Oregon Duck hat, which I always wore uh, before every game. And he said, yeah. he goes, I didn't know you were a Duck fan. And I said, yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm from Eugene, but I live in Portland. He goes, you know, I don't know a lot about Portland. I just know that every time my dad and I go there, uh, they riot. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, keep Portland weird. That's what we do up there. So uh, it was, he was very, uh, you know, pleasant to talking. He was there the whole time. He got there at 7.58. We walked out at about 8.20 or something, and he was there the entire time. He signed two dozen baseballs for us, um, and uh, it was uh, it was really it was really quite something. And again, this whole time, I'm putting on my gear and stuff. I'm still trying to, you know, I'm still also focusing for a play game. I, uh, you know, it, it would have been a, um, a little bit less uh, hectic if I was working right field or something, so... <laughs> So we walk out on the field, and 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 then uh, you know you saw what happened with that, and so it was it that the entire series was was unbelievable. The the the, uh, the uh, uh, home team won every game. Um, uh, you know you had the you had what what almost had never happened, or maybe had never happened, when uh, Rivera blew a save uh, and and lost Game Seven. Um, it was uh, it was just an incredible series. Yeah, and then another one, um, 2004, you know, 100th World Series, the Red Sox first world championship since 1918. A lot of happy people in Boston, right? Remember that one pretty well? Well, totally. I'll tell you about that. The series opened on Saturday in Boston. Um, the, you know, they were down three zip to the Yankees and won four in a row, which had never happened, and that was that was phenomenal. And, of course, it happened against the Yankees, so the Red Sox fans were – they had they had basically won already won their World Series. Well, Mike and I flew into Boston the day after Game Seven, uh, where they had beat the Yankees. And so I had never, you know, I'd been going to Boston for years. I love Boston. I've got a lot of friends there, but uh, there was something special that day. I, I remember telling Mike we flew in and some friends of ours. We went out to uh, dinner and had a few drinks and whatever. But um, I, I said, this town, it, it, this is the this is the the, the the nicest I've ever seen this town. This is the, the these people are not walking on the ground. They're about they're about a foot, you know, half a foot above, above the ground because they they were so ecstatic at what they have. You know, they live and breathe and die Red Sox baseball. They're just like the Yankee fans do, and and to to do that to the Yankees, it was the, the World Series almost seemed like a foregone conclusion. And of course, what, what do they do? They 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 swept the the Cardinals. Uh, so it was it, that was that was a special from the standpoint of, of Boston breaking the curse and finally getting that done. Yeah, and you did uh, you did three um, All Star games ninety three oh one and eleven. You did the plate in eleven, right? Yeah, I was the crew chief and worked the plate in eleven in uh, in Phoenix. Very nice, very nice. So that had to have been a lot of fun doing the All Star games, and then yeah, um, the All Star game, you know, is a, is a, is a fun event. It's it, you don't have the the pressures of a playoff game. It's it's it's. Uh, 
uh, you know, Major League Baseball has a huge, they're, they're, you know, it's like the Super Bowl, NFL has their big party and their corporate party and all that stuff because they know where the Super Bowl is going to be every year. You don't know who's in it, but you know where it's going to mm-hmm. be. In baseball, we don't know where the World Series is going to be, but they, they know where the All-Star uh, is going to be. So that's when they do their parties and stuff. And, and, and of course, you know, the game is, it's a, it's a, it's an exhibition. Yeah, they, everybody wants to win. We get all that, but it's not like working the series or the, or the divisionals or whatever. So, uh, it's a fun event for the umpire. You, 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 you know, you bring your family and friends and they, uh, uh, you know, now they have the, we get tickets to the home run derby and all that stuff for for people. I I, I didn't necessarily go, but uh, you know, my uh, family and friends and 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 then it's just a fun event. It absolutely is. I loved having it here in KC um, a few years back. So, got to give you props too, man. I love the red umpire shirt that you used to wear back in the day. Now, you guys wore those beginning in '96, but you were one of the few who really embraced it, man. I liked it. What made you choose the red? Well. Uh, <laughs> I think it was ninety. I think it was ninety-five the first year. It might maybe be ninety-six, but it, it was. You know, the American League had the red and, and then the, the dark blue. The National League had the dark blue and then the light blue. And um, uh, you, you know, it was so away from tradition and stuff. And I I I, I liked it, but but I even liked it more because I was working with Dave Phillips in ninety-six, ninety-seven, ninety-eight, um, and at that time the plate umpire determined what you wore in other words uh, if 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 i said red shirt they had to wear a red shirt unless it was cool enough on the basis that they could wear the windbreaker and i and i could still wear the shirt because you're working to play and you don't have to you know uh, be all the same on that so you know so, you know i would do it because dave phillips and rocky Rowe on that crew and derwood merrill was the other guy and derwood he liked the red he didn't he didn't mind but dave and rocky hated the red shirt so i just did it to, to, to screw with them. <laughs> and it, unless it was unless it was too cold to where i would have a windbreaker or something on behind the plate but that's that's how you know how it kind of started and then then i just then it was just a tradition daryl cousins was the only other uh, umpire on the staff that wore it on the plate every time and and every once in a while somebody else would if it was a really hot day uh, you know, day game or something, they might do it, but but almost uh, everybody else wore the wore the blue. So I, that's why Rocky had the greatest line. He he, uh, Rocky is one of the funniest, one of my f- most favorite partners, and one of the funniest guys you know. And 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 uh, when when I worked the plate, usually he had third base, <laughs> so um, you, you know he'd have that red shirt on. And Rocky, you know, he was he, he was a little rotund. He he. Uh, could have lost a few pounds, maybe, and, he, and eventually he did, actually. But at that time, he was a little rotund, and he said, you know, I hate that red shirt. He goes, every time I got a run from third base to second, I look like a human blood clot. <laughs> <laughs> I, said, I said, just because you said that, now I'm going to make sure I always wear the red. <laughs> oh, my gosh, that's a great line. Uh, you mentioned a guy on that crew, actually, um, that I want to – I'll just throw in a question about him right now because we lost him too young, obviously. Tell us what Derwood Merrill was like. special guy Durwood was you know um, <laughs> well where do you start with Durwood Durwood was a uh, you know bigger than life type guy I mean from Hooks Texas and and uh, you know you, you read his biography I remember one time because uh, he had done all this stuff he was the coach of this and he was the athletic director of this and he did this and did that somebody said you know Durwood just kind of had this up uh, it, it, all the stuff you've done in your age right now you must have been the athletic director when you were 10 <laughs> 
Zerwood had he had stories and and, and that crew uh, with Rocky because Rocky's a storyteller and Rocky's funny and uh, I can you know put in some uh, one-liners uh, myself and and Davey loves just sit back and listen all you know he's, that's the kind of crew he liked you know but uh, uh, a funny story about Derwood he uh, when he worked the plate. <laughs> He would wear these knee pads underneath his shin guards because uh, they would irritate his, his knees a little bit, so a little little padding. So when he's in the locker room getting you know getting dressed, he put these knee pads on, and he he wrote a line on the top of the knee pad and a line on the bottom of the knee pad. And on the on the on the on the on the, uh, on the top he he said uh, uh, strike, and, and on the bottom he said ball, and in the middle he said don't know. <laughs> <laughs> So he he did leave us to you know, he retired in '99 and uh, he he it was kind of a freak uh, hospital uh, screw up basically um, that uh, that cost him a, he went into I, I believe cardiac arrest and, and died but he I went to his funeral it was so touching uh, little town of Hooks and he was uh, helping with the you know how football is king in, in, in Texas and he was helping with the uh, Hooks High School. Um, and the entire, uh, you know, varsity, JV, freshmen, uh, anybody that had anything to do with the Hooks football, which in those towns everybody did, uh, they all were there in their uniforms, uh, in their jerseys. And uh, it, it just made a, a you know, besides, besides everybody else, there's a, there a ton of people there, but it really made a statement of how, how much uh, Durham was, uh, was loved. Yeah. Neat guy. Um, so you were the home plate umpire for one of my first favorite baseball memories as a kid, July 1st, 1990, when current Royals AAA pitching coach Andy Hawkins pitched eight no-hit innings in a road game and lost. What do you remember most about that one? Well, I remember that uh, to throw a no-hitter and lose is more rare than throwing a no-hitter and winning. Right. Um, yeah, he, he uh, it was at uh, Comiskey. It was the last year of Comiskey Park. Um and of the old Comiskey Park, and uh, it was uh, in the in the bottom of the eighth. The White Sox, I got, I think they got two or three runs on a error by Jim Layritz out in left field, uh, and so they're obviously unearned runs. And the Yankees came up in the ninth and didn't score. And Hawkins uh, had thrown eight uh, no hit innings and and got the loss. Now that was a no hitter until the next that that, that winter. Uh, they changed the the rule on that, and they said to qualify as a, as a, a no hitter, you have to pitch nine innings or more. And uh, and so it was a no hitter for a few months, and then it was not a no hitter <laughs> <laughs> in the official books, anyway. Yeah, it's funny how that works. And you did um, you did two of Justin Verlander's no hitters, what at second and third base or something like that? Is that right? I, I saw two of Verlander. Maybe it only has two, but I, uh, two Verlander no hitters. Uh, both on the bases, I, um, I, uh, I saw a Seattle Mariner combined no hitter. They like three or four pitchers in Seattle one night on the bases. Um, I had my own no hitter behind the plate. Scott Erickson no hit the Brewers in April of '94 in Minnesota, um, and uh, I've, I've never saw a perfect game. And it seems like I saw one other no hitter somewhere uh, on the bases, but I. I, I doesn't come to mind right now. Huh. Okay. Did you? This is kind of a silly question. Did you have any favorite ejections of all time? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I, yes. I, one of my 
uh, favorite stories was uh, uh, Terry Collins uh, was managing uh, Anaheim Angels in the uh, early, mid-90s. Um, and I had had Terry in uh, the Dominican Republic, so, you know, I, he, Terry's a good guy. He, he can get a little excited sometimes, but he's, he's, he's not, uh, you know, at least I never saw him be vicious, you know. I mean, he, he, he did what he had to do. Managers have to get thrown out. That's their job sometimes, and, and that's just the way it goes. But we were, in, we were in Anaheim. I was at second base working, and uh, Toronto was there. After three innings, uh, the Angels were up 10 to nothing. And, you know, the route was on. Well, guess what? About the seventh inning, it was 10 to 9. And so I went out on a ball, there's nobody on, and I believe the angel guy hit it, I don't even know who it was, but it was a question of was it a home run or spectator interference. And I called spectator interference. Of course, we had no replay then, back then. And, and, and so here comes Terry, you know, running out of the third base dugout, coming out. And of course, I, would, I got out on the ball, so I'm, I'm way out in center field, so I'm coming to start. This argument is happening. In, in shallow center field. And, uh, you know, as he's approaching me, I said, Terry, he reached is below the, the fence line. He reached below. He goes, well, I, I can't say his language. He goes, I don't give a blah, blah. He goes, uh, we are terrible. <laughs> I said, excuse me? He goes, he goes, can you believe this? He goes, we have a 10 nothing lead. Now it's 10 to 9. I, he goes, how bad are we? He goes, you know what? I am sick of watching this. You need to, you need to throw me out. <laughs> And, and, you know, it, now he's shaking his head and, 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 you know, pointing his finger. And, of course, it looks like he's just, you know, chewing me up pretty good. And, and I said, you know, so I said, well, well okay, Jerry. I said, you, you want to get thrown out? He goes, yeah, I want to get thrown out. And I, and I said, well, are you going to do something to, to get thrown out? He goes, oh, you want me to do something, do you? You want me to do something? And he takes his hat and he throws it about 20 yards. <laughs> so I eject him. And he goes, he goes you know what, Dale? I am so glad I get to leave here, and I am so I feel so sorry for you because you got to stick around and watch this. <laughs> I said, okay. Uh, the only other time that I had a situation like it, it didn't end up in an ejection, but it was it was just hilarious. Was Tom Kelly of the of the Twins uh, at the time? That's when uh, the Twins and A's were in the Western Division, of the American League, and they, they you know they both had pretty good teams for several years, and and. Uh, uh, Minnesota was at Oakland. It was uh, a tie game. I had to play a tie game uh, uh, in the uh, top of the eighth inning, and runners at first and second, nobody out. So he has uh, uh, his uh, infielder, Steve Lambertozzi, uh put down a sacrifice bunt, and he puts down a perfect sacrifice bunt. I mean, it's going to advance the runners. We're going to have second and third, one out. That's what, you know, tie game in late, late innings. Unfortunately, uh, uh, Lambertozzi didn't uh, run in the running lane as he went to first base. So when uh, uh, Steinbach, uh, uh, the catcher for the A's, uh, fielded the ball, he threw down to first, and it, and it hit uh, Lambertozzi in the back, and he was he was obviously out of the running line. So I call interference. I send the runners back, and, and Lambertozzi starts arguing. But here comes Kelly, comes flying out of the dugout. And again, you know, I'm thinking this is going to be a pretty good argument because of the situation. You know, sometimes situations dictate how, how big the argument is. And, and uh so here he comes, and he gets Lambertozzi out of there. And so it's just him and I, and he goes, he goes, I can't believe it. I cannot believe this. I have him bunt the ball. And what does he do? He makes a perfect bunt. And what can he do? He can't run in the running lane. And what do you do? You do your job. You call him out. And now instead of second and third with one out, I have first and second with one out. Why? Because he can't run in the running lane. <laughs> so, so I, you know, and again, when he's saying this, he's moving his head and it's in, with his arms, and it looks like he's just chewing me a, a, a new one. 
and as he's doing that, I start to smile. I start to kind of laugh, and he goes, "You can't laugh. You can't laugh. The camera's on us. The camera's on. You can't laugh." You know. And so I said, "Okay, okay." He goes, he goes, "Now this is what I'm going to do, Dale. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to have to go back to the dugout, and uh, hopefully that some of the, something's going to happen now because we screwed this up. Blah blah blah." And off he goes. You know. And so again, uh, after the game is over, my my partners we walk in the locker room. They said. What did he say? Why didn't you run him? Because it really looked like I was getting the, 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 the short end of this thing. And uh, and I said, you you guys you guys have no idea. And you know we laughed about it. But but uh, let's let's be uh, upfront here. Those are two exceptions to the rule. Yeah. Most of the time, they're they're not real happy about what's happening with our calls, <laughs> not with their team. Oh, I absolutely love that. Well, I remember, obviously, it was a very, very sad end to your career. You know, the, the four concussions in five years, and your career was cut short, and the, and the Toronto was real sad. I remember praying for you and, and watching that all all scared. So, But how tough was it for you to walk away uh, for the game you loved? Uh, how much longer were you planning on umpiring for, another five years or so? Well, actually, my play, that happened in 2017. Uh, that was my 32nd season. I was going to go two more. This year was actually going to be my – uh, my last year, I, uh, this August, I turned 60. Okay. And, uh, and you know, so that, that was what was going on. But uh, I just, um, you know, I, I just, uh, you know, sometimes you're, 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 you're dealt a hand and you got to play it, you know, and uh, it may not be the best. And, and don't, don't get me wrong, I had a great hand. I've had a great career, and, and I had so many uh, – you know, highlights and things that I never dreamed possible when I first went to umpire school in San Bernardino. So I'm not complaining by any stretch. But you know, it, that that wasn't the way I wanted to uh, to leave the game for sure. I mean, yeah, you work uh, just short of a of a 4,000 games, and your last game, you you exit the field uh, on a stretcher at a deck brace. You know, it's yeah. not not uh, uh, not what you wanted to do. But I also knew that after consulting, as I was recovering from that. Um, concussion and, and and the whiplash that uh, physical therapy I was having for that it it, it, uh, it was also the fourth one in in four years of the second one in eight months um, and I, I remember waiting in the emergency room because we had a little bit of a delay uh, until they got us into one of the one of the cubicles and I and I'm in that neck brace and I'm on this uh, stretcher so all I can do is look straight up to the ceiling I can't look sideways or anything I can hear everybody you know what's going on but anyway and I used to remember sitting there going First of all, I, I couldn't believe this happened again. I mean, it just it, it just seemed, you know, unbelievable. But but I also was th- I was already at that point thinking I I don't want to do this anymore. I don't I do not want to I don't want to keep getting hit. I just uh, I just don't want to do this. So um, I I consulted three specialists as I was recovering from that head blow and that concussion. I asked all three the same question: I, uh, What if any? Are the effects of these concussions and head blows will I have going forward? And and they all three had the exact same answer: We don't know. Hmm. We just don't know. We don't have the data. We're we're trying to get the data. There's research going on, but at this point, we really don't know uh, what the future lies. You may have absolutely zero effect from this, and you may have issues. And you know, I I, I look back at Greg Bonet, who who got a National League job the same day I got the American League job. He, uh, his career was cut short by concussions, uh, uh, and, and I, I, I talk to Greg every once in a while. He still has headaches. He still has memory issues. He, 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 it's you know, affected him to this day. Uh, Eddie Montague, who had a long National League career as an umpire, he's now a supervisor uh, with MLB. About two days after that incident, he called me and said, Scotty, I saw the video. I watched it several times. He goes, you're getting killed back there. He goes, 
talk to the league, get a deal, get the heck off the field. He goes, I still have neck issues. I still have sleep issues. I still have memory issues, all from the head blows that he took before we knew anything about concussions. Or, you know, it, was, it used to be, ah, shake it off, kid, you'll be fine. You know, that kind of stuff, which is the worst thing you can do. Right. Um, so, you know, coming from, from two guys that I know and, 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 and had the exact same you know, things that were happening to me, and, and, and listen, listening to specialists, I, I remember one, one of the doctors here in Portland said, you know, he didn't know, and, and they were trying to get the data and this and that. He goes, let, let me put it this way, Dale. He goes, uh, what we do know is, is, is the more head blows and concussions you get, the higher percentage you're going to have problems. I have a lot of – he was he's a, a, a brain trauma specialist, special, a sports specialist here at OHSU, and he said, uh, quite frankly, when I have someone who has had two or three uh, concussions and they, they say, you know – you know, I, I'm tired of this happening. What can I do? I just tell them, you know, the best thing to do is put yourself in a situation where you're not going to get concussions. <laughs> that pretty much sums it up. Get off the field, you know. So um, I, I was so close to retirement, uh, I just didn't want to take the chance anymore. I just uh, all the all the all the uh, testing and everything was good. There were no yellow flags. They're all green flags. That still doesn't mean you wouldn't have problems. But but at that point, things were looking good, and I. I just uh, uh, I, I contacted our UG uh, attorney. I said, well, you know, what are my options here? Because I, I, I I'm not sure if I want to come back. You know, and that's and that's basically how it worked out. Do you have any effects now? Or are you doing okay? I'm doing great. Um, I have seen no effects uh, thus far. Um, I, you know, um, hopefully that'll that'll remain the same. I I, I, I kind of assume it will, but. Um, you know, we're we're just uh, we're, we're, you just never know. But but as as of right now, like I said, all the testing that I've had and and that kind of stuff, there's nothing that they, they that they're you know concerned about or want to monitor or anything. Everything looks looks good, so uh, that's good. But you know, you, you work you know 37 years in professional baseball or whatever. Uh, you, you know, the last thing you want to do is you finally get uh, to relax and retire and, and have headaches or have memory right. issues or, or or whatever. You know, I mean, I just you know. My, what kept going through my mind was, Dale, if you go back on the field and you get hit again, what's your just? What, what, how do you defend that? You know, what's your justification? You've done everything, World Series, crew chief. You've, you've had a great career. Why? Why do this? Is it just for the money? You know, because uh, I think uh, I think your uh, quality of life uh, once you're you know done with this job is is pretty important too. So. Yeah, well, I'm glad you got out when you did. Now, I wanted to talk about this, too. This is off the field, but you talked about it earlier. Um, the first MLB umpire to come out as openly gay, that was uh, during 2014. So that was obviously a brave thing to do um, in what a lot of people you know, call more of a, boy, a boys club atmosphere. My words, not your words. But um, how long had you considered coming out? And then, you know, you know, were you, I guess, talk about the whole experience. How empowering was it? I remember reading, you know, you saying Marlon Bird accepted you and that was a big moment for you. Like, you know, tell us what that was like and what you remember about that moment and, and the whole process. Well, you know, it wasn't, it, it, it really wasn't um, this well thought out, uh, PR campaign of coming out. It, 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 the, the year before, in November of uh, 2013, Mike and I were legally buried in, in, in our backyard of our house in Palm Springs. Um, and, you know, we had been together since 1986, but now we were, you know, legally married. And, and, and then uh, you jump forward to September of, of uh, uh, 14. Uh, Referee Magazine, which is a uh, trade publication, it's only you know subscription. I think they've got about thirty thousand, give or take, sub- uh, subscribers. So it's not a huge uh, circulation type magazine. 
they were doing a story uh, about my career. It had nothing to do with gay things or anything, just my career. Um, and they, it, and it was a really good story. And, and uh, Peter Jackal wrote it, did a great job. But he really did research too. I mean, he he talked he talked to the, the Ken Larson, the, the the guy that got me started in umpiring in '75. He talked to uh, two people I went to high school with. He talked to the program director of KBDF at the time when I was working there. Um, uh, uh, you know, he, he, you know, my my story. He was backing it up with quotes from from people that were involved with it. So. The story's over. You know, he writes it up, and the, the editor said, hey, Dale, we've got a ton of umpire pictures, but do you have any pictures of, like, at the radio station or, you know, the stuff that we don't have that we can put in this, uh, in this story? I said, sure. Well, I, I, I was thinking, you know, everybody's in the story except Mike, and, and I didn't mention Mike in the story. I mean, that wasn't really where the story was going, but I thought, here's, a, here's the guy that, that has been with me since – you know, we met right after my first year in the big leagues. He's been with, on this journey with me, uh, for, you know, for the, basically the entire time. And I wanted to, you know, we just got married here before. The, the, the fact that we could get married is a, is a huge uh, civil rights uh, milestone for our community that, that uh, I was proud of, frankly. And, uh, and you know, so it, I, I thought, you know, I would like to put a picture of these ones I'm going to send him. Of, it was a picture of Mike and I on uh, the plane going to Australia when uh, MLB opened in Australia a few years ago uh, with uh, the Diamondbacks and the Dodgers. And I put the, and I asked Mike, I said, Mike, this is what I want to do. I just want to get make sure you're on board with this. He goes, it's you're the one that has to answer the questions here. You know, uh, you know, he was fine with it. So I. I, I, I sent that to him with some others, and I with the caption, uh, Dale Scott, with uh, longtime companion, uh, Michael Roush. I, yeah, I didn't say husband because I thought, ah, baby steps, we'll take baby steps. <laughs> right. So, um, so the uh, the editor called me, and I, I, I know him, and he, he said, now I got your stuff. He goes, I, you're, you're sure? You're, I have no problem putting this in. Don't get me wrong. I just want to make sure you, you realize that once you do that, that, that box is open. I said, I, I do realize that, and, and I'm ready for that. You know, I think it's time, and I, I have no problem. And you got to remember, Dave, I was an established umpire. Um, uh, the league knew. Uh, the umpires knew. Uh, heck, uh, uh, we were uh, registered domestic partners before we were uh, legal spouses, and he had his own MLB ID. He was on my insurance. You know, so this was not a shock to Park Avenue. This was not a shock to uh, the Empire staff. But you know, the teams didn't know, the media didn't know, the fans didn't know, and 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 it was the first you know male working male official in the Big Five sports to ever to ever come out. Uh, Violet Palmer of the NBA came out a few months earlier, so um, publicly. So um, you know, so it was kind of a big deal, but uh, but it wasn't a shock to them. Well, as it turned out, uh, a, a, because that magazine you know doesn't get around that much uh, the the uh, there was a, a, a gay uh, college football official that got the magazine who saw that he uh, contacted outsports.com and said hey Dale Scott just came out in the magazine here's you know, this picture they they contacted me they want to do an interview I I, I, I said it was right when the playoffs were going to start so I'll tell you well, I'll do an interview but after the World Series I don't want to do this now you know and he goes no problem and uh, did that and uh, when 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 it went on outsports on December 2nd 2014, it was a <laughs> totally different, different uh, reaction or action, uh, uh, you know, than the one with the referee. I was for a day and a half. I, I was ESPN, ABC, CBS, NBC. You know, I, I mean, inundated with 
uh, interview requests and, and phone calls and texts, and, and even Mike was agitated with friends he hadn't seen in years from high school. <laughs> so uh, it was quite a whirlwind for a day and a half, and then, and then it, it died down. Huh. That's, that's, and how, how empowering was that? I mean, that had to have been just finally you can just say, okay, I can take a deep breath now, right? Yeah, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, first of all, this happened in December, so I didn't go on the field until March. And, you know, with uh, the intention span of a lot of, of all of us these days, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I think a lot of people just didn't even think about it. But, but so, I, so, you know, obviously if I had done this during the season, it would have been a different uh, type of situation because every, every city I went into, I'd be asked questions and that kind of stuff. Right. Um, so there was that. Um, there was also the fact that, you know, like I said, I, I wasn't some new umpire trying to establish myself or whatever. I was a well-known entity, like me or hate me, but they knew who I was uh, and, and fans who knew I were and whatever. But you're absolutely right. I didn't really, I don't know, I, I wasn't sure what the reaction would be. I wasn't sure uh, how I would feel, quite frankly. Uh, I just knew that uh, we had fought as a community for so long for so many uh, different things, and one of them was was uh, marriage equality, and we had it, and Mike and I were married, and just just didn't seem right to to hide that anymore, you know. Um, and so, and, and then so, in, but to answer your question, uh, when I, you know, it was empowered when I walked on the field uh, that that season. Um, it 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 was like. A, a secret of mine or, or something about me that I had painstakingly tried to hide for years and years and years uh, uh, now is out there and and I, I you know I, I felt I felt like a burden was taken off I felt like I was actually finally Dale Scott the whole the whole person you know yeah, that's awesome. Um, well, we I want to wrap up here with uh, we've got some uh, random umpire questions from our listeners that I'm excited to ask you about. Um, first of all, what's the funniest thing you ever heard a fan yell at you? Well, uh, I, I'll never forget once I my first year in, in Walla Walla, uh, town so nice they they named it twice. <laughs> they they played at a football stadium, and so the the right field bleachers you know down the right field line uh went from the plate all the way down to the to the fence there was uh, some temporary stands kind of like, it was just not it was not set up very well for for baseball and that being said it probably held if it was full i don't know 10,000 people and usually they drew about 12 um <laughs> <laughs> it was like nobody there uh for these games and uh, and so I remember I had a I, I was on the bases and I called a Walla Walla a player out at first on a close play to end the inning, and of course I jog out to shallow right where I where I stand uh, between innings before the next inning starts, and you know there's some booing, you know, and then it just quiets down and it's just dead quiet. All of a sudden this guy goes, "Hey, up!" You know, and I'm going. Of course I'm not acknowledging that I hear him, but everybody hears him, and. Uh, and I'm just waiting. Now right, here we go. And he goes, uh, "Hey, Ump, what do you do in the off season? Fall off bar stools?" <laughs> you know what? That's better than the. You know, you're missing a good game, or you, you know. You, you, I mean, I if you if you had if you if you had uh, you know one good eye, you'd be a cyclops or whatever. I, it just I, it's the, the same ones you always hear. So I thought that was pretty good. One one uh, when I came out. Um, there was a, I got a ton of emails, and, and they were all very positive and, and, and actually quite, they 
quite touching, a lot of them. But uh, uh, I remember this one guy said, he goes, uh, because in the, in the, uh, in the uh, Outsports uh, story, and, and also, I guess, in the referee story, I, I talked about being an Oregon Duck fan and that kind of stuff. And he said, uh, he, he wrote, he goes, I cannot believe that Dale Scott came out as an Oregon Duck fan. <laughs> and then the very next line was, but it makes a lot of sense with all the uniform changes. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's that's classic. <laughs> that is good. My favorite back in my heckling days, I would always I thought I was so creative. Like if the Royals were facing the Angels, let's say, and I thought the Umpire was pro Angels, I would say, Take off your Tim Salmon jersey. I don't know, I thought that was kind of funny. I'd, I'd choose some random <laughs> David Eckstein, choose some random old player. <laughs> and like two people would get it. They're like, What is he talking about? I don't do that anymore. Those yeah, are, those are the old know. days. I'm a mature Davo now. Um, okay, uh, so all umpires, obviously. Well, another question I want to ask you: Do you actually hear the hecklers very often in the big leagues, or not really? You know, it, it's funny. It, you hear them when there's nobody there. I mean, like, okay. it, you know, those those times that you maybe have a long rain delay and a lot of people leave, and now you go back out there, you hear everything. But when you have a, a full stadium, you you really just hear noise. You hear cheering. You hear booing. Uh, you may hear a random thing here and there. Uh, you know, especially first or third, maybe even on the plate, you might hear random. But it's it's a lot more than just noise. And and um, it's it, it, the times you hear things is when, which seems uh, should be the other way around. But the times you hear things is when when there's not a lot of people there because you can hear everything. Okay, that makes sense. Now we all know umpires are human. Occasionally miss a call. Um, so, so when you would miss a call, how often did you know it right away? Um. Most of the time, but not always. Uh, you know, I've had I've had calls where I just, I, I man, I I saw it well. I you know, I was a, I know I got that right, and, and then I go in after the game and I didn't. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, but but you know, most most times, I mean, you know, there's a lot of times that I make a call, or there were there were times that I would make a call and think I was wrong, and then I, I actually was right. You know, I, I'd make it and I go, oh, God, you know kick that and I get an argument and I, I'd, I'd be kind of beating myself up a little bit for, for missing it and again, again this is all before replay because now we have you know real time <laughs> judging but uh, um, you know so you wait till after the game you get in the locker room the first thing you do you just fire that thing up uh, to, 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 to see the play and, and thinking I've kicked it the whole way and, and then see that I actually got it right I go oh that's cool <laughs> but, uh, but yeah there are those also times though that, that I, I knew right away I knew right away and you just you just go alright you know, just weather the storm and let's get through this. <laughs> you know, that makes sense. Now, the, the, I hate this that they're doing this stupid Atlantic League this year, trying the automated strike zone with robot umpires and all the different random stupid stuff that they're. I don't know. I just don't like it. I think umpires are a real baseball. Do you see that ever happening in MLB though? Twenty years from now, will there ever be robotic home plate umpires? Well, I'm you know never say never. I, I hope not. You know, um, be careful what you wish for because. Uh, you know, Davo, there's a there's the science of umpiring. You know, the the actual rule, the the, the actual three dimensional uh, you know strike zone or whatever. And then there's the art of umpiring. And the, these computerized systems do not have the art of umpiring. They 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 just have the science of it. So, if, in other words, you know, if 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 any pitch enters any part of the strike zone, it is to be called a strike. Okay, that's well and good, but you know the strike zone starts at the 
the front of the plate. It ends at the at the point of the back of the plate. It's very uh, obviously high low with the hitter. Uh, any part of the ball touching any part of the uh, the plate means it's it's touched the plate, and if it's the right height, it's it, you know it's that's a strike. Um, but you have these big league pitchers that are very good at you know ball movement and and, and that type of stuff, and you very and, and it happens. I mean, it happens uh, you know quite a bit that you have a pitch that technically. At the front edge of the plate, it's right at the knee, but it's moving, you know, away from the hitter, and the ca- and it's moving down, and the catcher will catch the ball a little bit outside, maybe even two or three inches outside, uh, if the guy's really moving and 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 just off the ground or something. Well, that machine's going to call that a strike because it, it it technically, by rule, it is a strike. But an umpire is not going to call that a strike um, because it's not accepted as a strike. You know, I mean, it, you 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 have to understand that. That you know, in any sport, you have rules. You have to have rules, and you have to have you know, you know, some kind of a, a you know protocol. But just because you know, like like the coaching box, you know, well, you got to be in the coaching box. Well, <laughs> no, you really don't. Adrian Beltre disagrees. Oh, that's there's, on Dexter. There's, there's there's the the, the two lines that are the most important are the, the line closest to the field of play and and the and the line. Uh, um, closest to the plate um those are the two most support lines otherwise but 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 again if if you know we don't we don't enforce the coaching box unless the other team uh complains because they think he's stealing signs or something then we enforce the coaching box for both teams you know and 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 then we get more strict on it but but again those are those are rules that if you want to you know if you want to say they're broken sure okay i guess i guess they were they broke the rule but but it's the art of umpire. So if you have a computerized whatever, uh, not only, uh, you know, the list of things that is taken away from it, just, to be, you know, the, the game itself. And, and, you know, if the hitter doesn't agree, I was going to yell at the computer. I mean, I, I don't know how that works. but um, <laughs> Pour a glass of uh, water on it. <laughs> yeah. And you still have to have a, a plate umpire. you gotta, you got to brush up the plate. you got to determine uh, a fair, you know, if the ball hit off the, or the you know, hit batsman or a foul ball. you got to you have plays at the plate. You have to, you know, check swings. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that you still have to do that the computer's not going to do. Um, but I, I, it, it boils down to this, Davo. Um, do you want a baseball game or do you want a video game? Right. And uh, I, I think most people want a baseball game. I, I always give the, the absurd uh, example of bases loaded, one out, uh, 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 made to order, double play, ground ball to the shortstop, and it goes through his legs. Do we go on the headsets and say, well, after further review, he usually gets that. We're going to give him two. Right, right. You know, of course you don't do that. The player made a mistake. He's human. He made an error. Usually he doesn't make that error. He did this time. Um, you know, so, um, you know, with, with replay, we, we're getting rid of the, the, the horrible mistakes that we make when we really, really kick a call. Uh, you have a recourse for that. Um, but, you know, if, if you want everything to be just by the letter perfect, I'm not sure that's the game you want to see. Yeah. And plus, we can't get rid of Tom Hallian strike three call, man. That's the best thing <laughs> I, in sports. Tommy, I, I, you know, I mean, I, I, every Christmas I give him a chiropractor, uh, uh, you know, certificates. I mean, I, I don't know how his body, you know, he's older than I am, for God's sake. I love that guy. Okay. Uh, how often as an umpire – can you tell, like, are there days where you're just like, this team's not going to get a hit all day, or, or man, this team's going to light this guy up? I mean, you can probably tell stuff as well as the hitter can, right? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I, I've, I've seen, yeah, I've seen times where a guy just is, is just nasty, filthy. You know, you're thinking, this, they're not going to touch him. And then, 
you know, for five, any, and then he comes out in the sixth inning, and it's like he's never pitched before. You know, yeah, <laughs> it's like what the hell happened? Yeah, um, you know, I, uh, it, 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 that's, you know, I said earlier, uh, I enjoyed umpiring when I first started because the, the challenge of it. But it, it, every single day, you show up, you, you have no idea what's going to happen. I, I, I could have a, a perfect game today. I could have a, a twenty-one to twenty, you know. A five hour nine inning game today. I could have, uh, uh, you know, uh, two triple plays, in which, by the way, I did have one uh, one time. I think it's the only time it's happened. I could be wrong. Um, uh, you, you know, I, I, I could have that playoff game in, in Toronto in, in 2015 when Russell Martin throwing the ball back to the pitcher got a little lazy, hit the hit the hitter's bat. It goes flying <laughs> off, and, a, and the go ahead, uh, go ahead run scores. I mean, in 4,000 games almost, I have never seen that. You know. Uh, I saw one. Let me let me backtrack. I saw once in Kansas City, uh, but there was nobody on base, uh, and and so it was, you know it was nothing. But I I've never seen. I mean, how many times have I seen a catcher throw the ball back to the pitcher after a pitch? Million, a few million. It seems yeah. like. Uh, so so you never know what's going to happen, and and but you got to be you know, hopefully you're going to be ready for whatever does happen, and 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 deal with it uh, you know the right way, and 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 move on. So. Um, uh, you know, a pitcher. Sometimes you think, man, he's unhittable, and then and then, and, and and maybe you know he, he throws a gem. But other times, you, you, the guy can look just unhittable, and then and then like he'd never pitched before. It's just a weird game. Now, how often was would there be a play or situation happen where you guys were like, man, what is the rule on that? Like, there's because there's so many obscure things. Was there ever a time where you guys didn't even know what the hell to do, <laughs> like in a situation? Well. well um, I'm not going to say yes, but you know, um, there were times that it was a little confusing. Um, but you know, that's why that's why you you get together and 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 you uh, you know you talk it through and 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 come up with what you uh, are pretty confident is is the right ruling. It, um, now with replay, we can go to the headsets and uh, go to uh, to Chelsea and say, hey, what what is the you know. We have this. Is that correct? You know, because one of the worst things you can do as an umpire is have a protested game that is upheld. Right. Um, you may have a protested game, but you know, if if you're right, you, you, you don't like having them because you have to write reports. Blah blah blah. But if you're right, you, you're not too concerned about it because you know it's going to be you, you ruled correctly. But but um, you know, if you have a process where you're pretty right, you're pretty sure this before uh, replay. You're pretty sure, but yeah, you're not quite sure. You know. Um, uh, and then it's upheld. That's not a good thing. And it's very rare that happens. It's very rare that happens. Like Pine Tar game. Now, with, uh, in fact, that game I had in Toronto, that playoff game, we went to the headsets twice just to make sure that we were doing that properly. I mean, it's a big run. It's a big game. And, and the last thing we wanted, and, and John Gibbons, the manager for Toronto, said, well, I, I want to protest. And I said, well, what, do, what are you protesting? <laughs> you know, because you, you can't just say, I'm, <laughs> what's funny, he said, I'm protesting everything. And I go, well, John, you got to be more specific than that. <laughs> Well, and along those same lines with computers, you know, being literal, 
Now you, you've got to know situations too. So what, so as an umpire, how do you? Because you want to be consistent, right? I mean, people all say we don't care if, what the strike zone is as long as it's consistent. But so a three zero count, for example, if a struggling pitcher, or maybe you've, you're in Denver and you've got snow coming, or you've got thunderstorms coming, and you're in the fi- top of the fifth, and it's a blowout for the home team, and you need that you know two more outs to get you to five innings. When do you decide? I mean. <laughs> Do you is there sometimes where an umpire just has to widen the zone a little bit a fifteen nothing game with the position player pitching like how how do you decide well, on those things? You know that's an interesting question because that is what I put as art of umpiring. Um, you know that's that's when you're using some common sense or whatever. I mean, if you you know that is to me knowing the situation and 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 not being completely absurd, but you're 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 dealing with the situation. You know, in a, in a, in a proper, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of like, you know, teams down 15 to one, and you need, you know, two more outs to make it a uh, regulation game, and your forecast is horrible, and it's and it's barreling in on you. Nobody wants to replay that game if we don't get those two out, you know. Or, or of course, now they have the suspended rule, but I mean, uh, 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 you know, those types of things, you know, could happen. Um, but with that machine. If we if we do widen the, the zone a little bit to, to, to get them to swing the bat or, or to, you know to, to get through this and, and 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 get a game in because it's a blowout or whatever, that machine we're still evaluated on every pitch we call and we will be downgraded on every pitch hmm. we miss, hmm. uh, regardless of the situation. Interesting. That makes sense because you guys do get graded every game, right? Every pitch, every pitch that we call ball or strike is evaluated. Every play on the on the bases is. Is uh, is evaluated. Um, we, you know, we uh, we. <laughs> I always hear, oh, the, the umpires have no accountability. There's no accountability. Well, that's that's so far from the truth. Uh, we, we're accountable for everything we call, and for some stuff we don't call. Um, you know, uh, that we determine it was an obstruction, and then we get a, a call from the supervisor saying, well, you missed an obstruction, you know, or whatever. But uh, uh, we're accountable. It's just that they don't announce everything because. Uh, because uh, they keep it, you know, more or less internal, for obvious reasons. You, you, you the context is, is very important. If 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 you if you have an umpire that maybe, uh, you know, you have a bias against anyway because you think he's not very good or whatever, and now they release information that uh, he missed, uh, you know, this past week he missed uh, two steal plays or something, uh, and and so now they say, oh, well, see, it just proves this guy's horrible. <laughs> well, maybe the two steal plays were. Uh, the call was right, but he was safe by a mile. But when he came up, he came up uh, half an inch off the base. The guy had had the tag still on him, and and that's a missed call because you didn't call him out. But it's a replay call. You know what I mean? It, 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 there's context to this stuff, and 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 there's all other reasons why you don't release that information because it it would be digested in a, in a, in a, in a not in a positive way, and it, it would be more of a distraction. But internally, we have a, we have mid-season evaluations, we have year-end evaluations. We, we uh, you know, every every plate game the next day, you go online uh, to our site, and, and you can see every pitch that, that the machine said you missed. Um, you, you can look at them again. Some you agree with, some you think well, you know maybe maybe uh, the high-low line was wasn't set right or, or whatever. But but uh, we are accountable for for everything. Well, last few questions. One more rule thing. Um, I was just thinking of this, and I admit this is ridiculous and would probably never happen because the catcher would get bean next time he came up to hit. But in theory, so let's say the pitcher starts his windup and the catcher, the, the pitcher's about to release the ball and the catcher just screams like to throw the hitter off. 
you know, could a catcher do that legally if, if he really wanted to? Is that legal in the rules? Well, you know, I don't, I don't, I, I don't think there's a rule against it. But you're right; um, he better not hit. <laughs> and and frankly, and frankly, if you if you did it enough, they wouldn't even wait till he comes up to bat. They're just going to take the bat. Going to tear into it right there. You know, has that ever happened before? Do you think? I'm sorry. Do you think anybody's ever actually done that before? Ever happened? I, I, you know what? I'm sure it's happened sometime. I don't. I, I don't recall it ever happening. But <laughs> you know, in games I've worked. But but uh, you know, there, the reason there's rules is because somewhere some, at some time something happens. <laughs> you know, and so they they thought, well, that's not fair, and so they they would you know come up with a rule for it or whatever. Well, my last few questions uh, have to center around the Royals, of course, since we're a, a Royals website and radio show. So when you think back to Kansas City, what are your favorite memories of umpiring here? Well, you know, Kansas City was one of the favorites. We, I've got uh, several fun, good friends uh, in Kansas City. Um, you know, we used to when when uh, across the, for for many years early in my career, right across the street uh, from the stadium was uh, uh, Sanders um, uh, restaurant, you know, the, the pan fried. Uh, uh, chicken or whatever but we anyway pat sanders was the owner we good friends and i still am he, he's got another place now and, but uh we used to you know after the games we, we'd head over there and, and, and hang out with those uh, with him and a bunch of friends that we had there uh there's a gentleman in in, in kansas city uh joe goodfellow has been a f- friend of the umpires for years and years and years and uh, uh just had open heart surgery by the way uh, a few uh, months ago so he's doing well but but um i you know, I, it's one of our favorite cities. It's one of our favorite cities to go to, and and we've always enjoyed it. I I uh, I never had any any you know any playoff games there. I never had you know an All Star game or anything like that. So I don't have those uh, type of memories. I just remember, especially early in my career, how good the Royals were, and they drew just you know the, the, their fans are just you know they're 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 very loyal. Uh, uh, fans and and you know they went through some lean years too and, and that was a little tough but uh just a great city and we always enjoyed going there in fact uh joe goodfellow he's, he's chief season tickets for years he's, he's trying to get me to get out there and and see a, a chiefs game and I, i'll take him up on it one of these days oh you got to you can come in on the, on the show with me and do a little radio you know hosting with me that'd be great you should totally come to town <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i, I really i would uh, i would like to do that and and uh in fact, I, I haven't even looked at their schedule this year. I got to take a look and see. Maybe I can yeah. angle Joe and, get, and, and come to a game. Maybe come in September and do a Royals game too. You know, when they're home. well, I guess they're never home at the same time, are they? Never mind. That's a dumb comment. Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> if I was thinking better, I would have known that. Um, okay, so who are your, some of your favorite, you know, colorful Royals players or managers throughout the year? Some of your favorite guys you dealt with with KC. You know, uh, you know Bob Boone. When I, I had the tail end of his career as a catcher, and Bob Boone is one of the best catchers, receivers uh, I ever worked behind. He he had a he had a way he had a knack the way he would finesse that that uh, every pitch that he, he made he made every pitch look like a strike. I mean, he was he was so good. And there's very few guys that have that talent. There's some good receivers that that certainly help their pitchers, and then there's some receivers. You know, they're 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 you know. Some of our all-star catchers that are not good receivers. They may hit the ball well, or they may call a good game, but they—they—they they, they, a, a, a catcher can—he 
can take a few pitches away from his pitcher, and he can he can help his pitcher if 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 he knows how to receive the ball. And Bob Boone was one of the best at it, um, if if not the best that I've ever had in, in my career. And you know, and I only had him a few years uh, before he uh, stepped off the field. Um, uh, you know, George Brett was always funny. He always had a pretty good line that you know, uh, or uh, equipped to say, or you know, something. And uh, I remember one time he was at first base and. And I, I was the first base umpire, and there was a check swing that came down to me, and I said, you know, I said the guy swung, and, and George goes, oh, Dale, good God, he says, that's, a, that's the worst call I've ever seen. I said, oh, George, come on, you've seen me work, I've got worse calls than that. <laughs> he, he starts laughing. Like, <laughs> uh, uh, I'm trying to think uh, who else uh, we had on that team uh, through the years. There was uh, there was some uh, first time, I, I remember, uh, uh, you know, like, Willie Wilson and a couple other guys whose names don't come to but they were so fast. I mean, you when you had the bases, uh, if you had second base, you knew they were stealing, and, and, you know, steal plays almost are always close. I mean, you just were ready for it. If you're at first base, especially when they had the artificial turf, they could, you know, knock one of those, uh, hit it right down off the turf, and, and, and those guys would run, run, run. <laughs> it was like, uh, you know, we. they also had Steve Balboni. Now, he could not run. I remember that. <laughs> yeah, Billy Butler, too, for that matter. <laughs> <laughs> uh that's funny that yeah we've had some we've had some characters and, and super nice guys like you know my boy mike sweeney i love that guy i'm sure you mike sweeney yeah, yeah. Mike sweeney was a, a super guy i love that guy um okay so where does kaufman stadium rank in like the 40 plus i'm sure it's not number one but i'm sure it's probably top 10 or 15 is it up there in the upper tier well you know you and correct me if i'm wrong you take away wrigley and fenway it's about the, the oldest one isn't it yeah that you got dodger stadium, dodger stadium. yep the, the, i think it is the fourth longest i really yeah yeah, yeah. I love it. The, the thing, the, the thing. Here's what I want to ask you about. So, I mean, I've been to about you know ten downtown parks, and I'm sure you've been to all of them, obviously. So, people are talking, you know, another eight to ten years, they might build one downtown with a retractable roof and all that. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, um, you, you know, um, first of all, I think a retractable roof is the way to go. Uh, that way, uh, you have you draw your fan base uh, drives. Some of them drive a long ways uh, to, to see games and. And even if you get the game in, if you have an hour and a half, two-hour rain delay, it, that's a that's a tough, some tough duty for fans, you know. And 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 uh, and you can get those those uh, thunderstorms and stuff there. But I, so I think that's the best way to go. Nice day, it's open, everybody's happy. Uh, it's not so nice day. We close it up. We still play baseball. That's great. Um, I am in favor, almost 100% in downtown stadiums. I've seen what they've done to downtowns. They're they're the, you know the. the the bars and restaurants and, and, and stuff that, that all fill in, either are already there or all fill in uh, once the stadium is built. Uh, and, you know, you'd walk to, a, to, to, a, to the games and stuff I like. I'm not sure. When they say downtown, they're not talking about the plaza, are they? They're talking about more downtown. No, probably like River Market area. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Or maybe like where the old one used to be, possibly just east of downtown. They right. don't have an exact location yet. but Right, right. I mean, you know, uh, they have a unique situation there, uh, which I guess maybe sometimes could be their disadvantage if they had a, a Chiefs game and a Royals game because of, you know, a playoff or, or whatever. Preseason you know, or something, maybe yeah. Originally planned, that could be a bit of a, a problem. But but um, I don't know. I mean, you know, 
I, I would I would think that a downtown stadium would, would would do well there, but you know they're doing pretty good without having one. So I, I'm I'm just not I'm not sure uh, in 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 that situation. But let me uh, give a shout out if if they have it near the Quaff, that's where it should be because that's <laughs> that's where we're going. That's what I hear. I hear the I've I've learned that the last few months that the umpires love the Quaff. Yeah, the, I mean the unique thing here too is that people love the tailgate, and of course it's so damn easy to get in and out of that place. I mean it is kind right, of in the middle right, of nowhere, right, you know. And, and you know, you know, if you have a, and, you know, I, I didn't even think about the tailgate thing yet, and 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 that's kind of a that's kind of a tradition there too. Yeah. It, it, yeah. So I can so I can see I can see where I can see where you know I, the thing is about there, uh, and what I've learned through the years with their fan base is that uh, you know obviously if you know not every year maybe you have the greatest product out there but if you put out if you put out a decent product or a young product that maybe is not winning as much as you want to but you got a lot of potential the the, the royals fans are going to be there they're, they're a pretty loyal fan base and and uh you know they're not they're not i don't i don't read them as fickle like some some cities so that being said the, the tailgating uh, the, the the in and out uh, stuff the, the way your downtown is kind of set up at this point i you know i could see where uh even though I usually say downtown, maybe not so much there. Yeah, I can't decide. I get so many memories. Well, my last, my last two questions, and, I, and I'm going to take Kauffman Stadium out, so that way you, you don't feel obligated that you have to say it. But give me your top three MLB ballparks, other than Kauffman well, Stadium. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, Pittsburgh has done an outstanding job. That is a beautiful ballpark. This, the setting, the background with the city of Pittsburgh, it's uh, the bridges is on the river. I, I just think uh, it's one of the best ballparks. Now, and, and let me preface by saying we got a lot of good ballparks. Um, and, I, and in my career, I saw almost all of them uh, change. You know, except for just a handful of them. Uh, I've seen you know the the, uh, the new ones come in. Uh, um, my personal favorites, uh, like I said, I, I, Pittsburgh is, is is right up there. I think that. Um, well, for tra- for tradition, you know, Wrigley and Fenway are special. Uh, mm-hmm. there's, there's there's no doubt about that. Um, it, it, it's kind of they're kind of in their own category type thing. Uh, uh, you know, a, another beautiful ballpark that I I, mean, I think Seattle did a great job with what they have there and and, and the, the you know the the, the, the the sites that you see, especially the upper decks, it's just gorgeous with the Puget Sound and everything. Um, uh, let me. Uh, San Francisco's unique ballpark, mm-hmm. that footprint they have there. The, the Twins, the Twins' new ballpark, and that footprint they have there is uh, way better than the Metrodome. <laughs> yeah, well, that's for sure. Uh, so there's, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of good ones, um, and and you know, so I, you know, baseball is, uh, you know, like I said, during my career, I, I just I saw a bunch of them sprout up, and and uh, yeah, you know, another good one that's been, you know, nowadays is kind of old. Is uh, Cleveland? I think they did a great really? job in Cleveland, and, and the Lions in that at that ballpark, and how they situated, uh, you know, everything. I, I think Cleveland's a, a gorgeous ballpark. I've been to, I think I've been to fourteen now. I'm doing. It's funny you say that. I'm doing Pittsburgh and Cleveland this summer. I try to add two a summer, so I'm doing uh, those two. Interesting to see what you thought of those two. I, I, I think. Uh, Quite frankly, I think that, you know they're two of the, the better ones for sure. I think the two most underrated I've been to. Everyone always hates on Angel Stadium, and I know it's old, but I like that park. It, probably because I think the same people that designed Kaufman did that one. But I also like. Um, I thought Philadelphia was really nice, actually, and I thought Washington. Yeah, I yeah, thought DC yeah, was very though, basic. From what they were coming from, I, I only had a couple of years under the old place before they they moved, and, and and that is that is nice. You know the uh, um, ballpark. Well, you know one of the first. Uh, Fan-friendly uh, fan parks was, was were, were the Orioles back in 19, mm-hmm. 
1992 or 93. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and now, now is that almost, that, you know, almost seems old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, or, or almost out there, you know, the, the, the club that, that, that they built a new ballpark a year after the Orioles and it just still didn't have any personality is, is the White Sox. Yeah, it's horrible. And it, yeah, I, I I didn't I didn't think that the Nationals was that good. I was very disappointed. There was no it was just cookie cutter. There was nothing you would think in DC. I mean, they have the presidents racing, but outside of that, there's you wouldn't know you were in DC. I was kind of I mean, it wasn't horrible or anything. I was just very disappointed by that one. Yeah, I, I like Denver. San Diego. San Diego's another one. I love uh, that they're in the gas lamp and and. Uh, you know the setting for that uh, for that park is nice. Uh, I'll tell you who needs a new one is Oakland. Oh my yeah, God. yeah, or Tampa Bay, but they probably are going to yeah, end up Tampa, moving that yeah, team. Exactly. And then you got Atlanta building a new park every five years. <laughs> well, you know, Texas <laughs> building one next for next year. You know that's twenty what, twenty years old, a little bit. Yeah. Years old. yeah, yeah. Well, my last question for you, I guess, in summary, what would you like to say to, to Royals and baseball fans listening right now? Well, in summary, I'd like to say. Uh, I love Kansas City. It's always been pretty good to me, even though times that you hated me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> only a couple, Dale. Only a couple. <laughs> um, you know, the, they're they're very uh, very special people in uh, Kansas City. They're very, uh, you know, I, I've met a lot of people there through, uh, like I said, the places we used to go and Joe and stuff, and and everybody is uh, is has been great. I, I just uh, uh, like I said when when that was on the schedule, that was. Uh, uh, a place that you enjoyed going to, uh, you know, the facilities, the ballpark was good. The, the, the uh, you know, our, our accommodations were good. We had uh, fun places to go after games, or you, you know, you go to lunch at the plaza or whatever. It's just, uh, um, you know, you, you enjoyed going to Kansas City. I can't say that for every city. Trust me. Um, when you saw them on the schedule, sometimes you went, ooh, but uh, <laughs> Kansas City was good, and I and. Uh, I thank all the fans for uh, for their support. They weren't supporting me, I know, but uh, every once in a while they cheered me when I called something for the for the Royals. So I'm, I'm, I'll just yeah. I'll just say they were supporting me. Dinginger is still number one in our hearts, though. <laughs> uh, Don, you know what? It, it, Don was man. Yeah, that shows you that shows you the uh, the uh, what can happen in this job. A, a, yeah. a unbelievably solid, exceptional umpire. Worked a huge games throughout his career, and unfortunately, that one play. Um, is what he's remembered for. You say, <laughs> you say unfortunate, I say fortunate. <laughs> well, that's true. That's Just true. joking. Uh, you know, always remember, it's uh, yeah, something that goes against somebody. Somebody else is pretty happy, usually. Thanks so much for taking the time to, to join us and, and for all your time. I mean, about two hours. Sorry for keeping you so long, but it was, it was a fascinating interview for me, and I love, you know, talking radio and baseball, and, and hope, hope we can do it again in the future. Well, that sounds good, Dave. Anytime, and uh, hopefully we'll... Uh, actually meet someday. Sounds good, man. Take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.